my fellow Astorians. I'm particularly excited for day, for day, for today, <laughs> for all days, but particularly today. I'm excited for night. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may, we make a great team in that case. I've had hyperbrain for half the week, and when I've been able to focus, it's resulted in some ideas I hadn't considered before. I've had, that gives me a fresh perspective on some of these ancient stories and how the pact and the God's Eye and the Green Men and the Isle of Faces relate to A Song of Ice and Fire directly, in particular what's coming in A Song of Ice and Fire at the end. The fact that these topics are so mysterious and held away from us, held at arm's length away from readers' knowledge, is in itself a clue that it's being saved, something we touched on last time. But that all feeds into this very nicely. So I'm excited to share that with you. Shay was encouraging me to tell y'all why my brain has been hyper. No, it's not cocaine or something like that. It's Beat Saber. I've been playing Beat Saber 360 and I have just... Our VR set. uh, On VR and it's been, my brain has been hyper stimulated. (laughs) I was up until eight in the morning the other day, just could not sleep, just super bah. (laughs) Gotta defend himself from blocks. You never know when they can come get you. Yeah, you gotta be ready for those things. You know, those blocks can approach you from any direction and (laughs) hit you with their light. (laughs) So I'm excited. I hope you all are excited. And Karina Strick is excited. She sent a super chat and wants to know what you're drinking today, Sean. So Tell us and her what you've got in your cup today. I have, once again, gone with Bang. No Mountain Dew. I have the Lime Bang with the Green Machine Naked Drink and also Coconut Pineapple Sparkling Ice. And it's really good. I doubt that. But I'm glad you are enjoying it. We're going to try a Bang (laughs) one of these days, I guess. I've never had one. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of... Well... I wish you best of luck with that beverage and all (laughs) the beverages to come. I wish you good fortune in the beverages to come. (laughs) So far, I haven't needed any luck. Yeah, okay, well, right on. (laughs) Shout out to Nina, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. We've got notes from her as usual on her blog. Uh, Right now, there's an interesting question about the long night and the threat it poses to the realm in terms of how it's going to be solved using the TV show a bit as... An idea, will it really be that simple? Will it really be that quick? Or a couple of related questions like that. Good stuff. Check it out. Alley with one L.tumblr.com. This episode is sponsored by Give Her Gifts. That's G-I-V, hergifts.com. Get 10% off with the code Westeros. I'm hopefully going to stimulate some new thoughts in y'all's brains while my own brain is extra stimulated. As the Pact itself ended hostilities and set forth new agreements. I think that's where this fits in the story, right? The pact divvied up land and established a few compromises centered around each side's deeply held beliefs like, okay, obviously part of peace is we don't kill each other, but also don't kill these trees. And also let us make a few farms, right? And you guys can live here, we live here. It's sort of sussing all that out. Now, ultimately, I think we can expect something like that at the end of A Song of Ice and Fire as well. We even talked about one of the most, at least what we think is one of the most likely ways for that to form, which is some sort of great council at the end. That's a lot like a pact of sorts. It isn't a pact between races, but it is something like that may happen as well. There may be some sort of deal with the remaining children or who knows. Uh, That's the kind of thing that we don't know exactly. It's not the details that we can get uh, really close to, but the general themes, the general ideas, the, the book ending, 
the series may end with some sort of something like that, but it also uh, with a pact of some kind. But in order to do that, you got to stop all the civil wars and the others in winter. There's all these massive issues that have to be solved first. So unless winter wins, right, we're going to see something along the lines of the title of the final book becoming a reality, meaning a dream of spring. The pact ended and it kicked off a kind of a golden age of peace between the first men and the children as, you know, allies, neighbors, and fellow worshipers of of the same or similar gods. And that might be what we are left with or left with a hope for at the end of the series. Things will be better for a while. Of course, they won't be perfect. It's people, so they can't be perfect, but that would be kind of a new era too, wouldn't it, Sean? If there's new governments, new situation, different kingdoms. What if the seasons are normal, right? What if King's Landing is destroyed and the seat of power is in a different place? What if the Citadel is gone? What if the wall is gone? That does sound like the beginning of a new era, a new age. Those are all huge events on their own, right? But if you got all these semi-permanent changes to the realm, like kicking off a whole new system, all that stuff, like you can see. Wildlings coming south. Sure, yeah, new people living, like people, whatever Daenerys probably as well is going to have a big impact on that. If she's bringing over Dothraki and Unsullied and R'hllor worshippers are following her, that's going to that's gonna have a big impact on the population, right? Different cultures and ethnicities will be part of Westeros, perhaps semi-permanently. Who knows? It's just a massive wave of change, which is sort of what the pact kicked off, right? This stuff happened on the Isle of Faces. We don't know the exact details, but Westeros was very changed and it stayed changed for a long time until until more changes came along, like the Andals and the Long Night and, and things like that. So it's really cool. As we indicated, uh, a lot of these things aren't mentioned very often in the series. So Isle of Faces doesn't come up that often. The pact even less. The Green Men slightly more. And usually when one of them is mentioned, quite often all three of them are. Now, remember too, we talked about the the tale growing and the telling. That's a big subtopic we've had to discuss here. And we talked about how early on George was pretty clear that he he only did world building that was that he thought was relevant to the story. Now, that's not true anymore, obviously, because he's added so much world building, especially stuff like in the far, far, far east. Like, I seriously doubt the city of winged men is going to matter in the series. So George has clearly gone beyond that, which is why it's so important that the pact, the Isle of Faces, the green men were all mentioned really, really early in the series. So they were part of the plans from George's mind, even when this was only a trilogy. When George only had three books planned, these were still a part of it. So these have been a part of the story a long time. So as the story has expanded, they've gotten farther into the distance because the expansion of the story is in the middle, right? He still has a general idea of how to start and end it. Those haven't changed a ton, I don't think. At least not this aspect we're talking about. So that was a lot to say to kick us off, Sean. What are, you, what's your, what are your initial thoughts as we kick off this topic today? A couple things you've hit on already are just brushing up on this, that if you search a, a search of ice and fire for, well, actually, if you search for green men, there's like 380, <laughs> but almost none of them are actually green men. It's just a reference to, to the word men and, and the word green. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, but if you look for green aisle or green or, or you know, aisle faces or green aisle fa- or just some combination that narrows it down a little bit more, as like less than a dozen results, yeah. you know, and mostly towards the beginning. So it, so one, like you said, that's sort of a clue to itself that it is a mystery. Uh, it's ancient, and but and and maybe irrelevant. But like you said, also, 
it's right there in the beginning. Those references yeah. are all in the beginning. So I, I wonder if it is a, a sort of a foundation that will come back around or maybe a seed that he planted that he didn't cultivate. Or maybe it mm-hmm. won't get there. Maybe he went off enough on other tangents and is more concerned about developing these characters than hashing out the ancient history. Maybe they'll become intertwined. He's got a, a lot more. Even these next two books, people worry that maybe he won't even finish them. But I'm optimistic that he'll finish them and release another World of Ice and Fire type Fire Blood 2 uh, is supposed to be Yeah, on, something on like schedule. that. Yeah. And lots of people just want to know what happened to John. And they don't necessarily care about the world building and the history. But a lot of us might be willing to sacrifice knowing what happens to John to get more of the world building history. So there's <laughs> like a lot of ways for him to, to please us or satisfy us. So, But in the meantime, we're digging for every little bit of clue or evidence or connection that we can. Damn right. And we also, I think, are going to do a lot of work today in showing just how tight some of these connections are giving at least some ideas of, of what these things are referring to. Let's, real quick, the, the mentions are so infrequent early on, I can actually list them really quick. The Isle Faces is mentioned in Catelyn's first chapter, Danny's first chapter, John's fifth chapter, and Bran's final chapter, meaning final chapter in A Game of Thrones, not final chapter of all. It comes up a few times later, the God's Eye and Isle Faces come up quite a bit in A Storm of Swords in that one chunk when Mira and Jojen and Bran are specifically discussing it. And that's one of our biggest clues, given that supposedly Howland Reed actually went there. So that's a, that's a huge one. That is another bit of a secret George is keeping from us, <laughs> is Howland Reed and his character and the Krannig men in general. That's another thing if you search for, you'll find a few more results. And a lot of them are kind of connecting them, at least loosely, to... The children or the green men or something, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I've got a, I've, I've written a little piece on that here. Let's, let me read it for y'all. And, and starting off with a piece from Nina, she says, given how early George name drops the children of the forest, they're literally mentioned in the very first non-prologue chapter. They're not in the prologue uh, as far as I mentioned, but they are mentioned in chapter one by, in Brand's chapter. She says, I'm not surprised by the infrequent mentions. The children of the forest are clearly key to the story here. So it makes sense that one of the last bastions of the children of the forest, after they were driven out of the most of the sub-wall areas of Westeros would be key as well. Likewise, with the early importance of the last hero myth, Bran mentions it in his fourth chapter, with his declaration that the children of the forest helped the last hero that's being told to him, the story of the last hero is being told to him, and he's like, that's the the children of the forest. He, He blurts out these things. When all others failed him, the children of the forest helped. It's easy to see why George focuses on that so early. And now where we see that's where he is. Bran is with them four books later, when no one else is helping him besides Mira and Jojen when his home has been destroyed and all his family is scattered to the four winds and all that. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there it is. The the last hero myth playing out. That's another ancient story as old as some of, these other, some of these other things. But it also fits really well with a lot of these structural ideas George has. He, re- he has a version of history repeating itself in a lot of places. And I've just given you... Uh, a way to envision a new pact or something like that. So having the series end in a manner somewhat familiar to how it all began would be really fitting. But because they're so rare, we'll be looking at more examples than usual from the main text today. We're going to have additional quotes from Song of Ice and Fire in addition to the the World of Ice and Fire quotes. Most of that's going to be the second half of the episode where we've got brand chapter quotes mostly, but a few others. But geez, Howland Reed, not only is he a witness to the Tower of Joy 
Not only did he know Liana prior to that, uh, not only was he possibly privy to a lot of it down between her and Rhaegar, not to mention whatever he learned by being so close to Ned, if Ned talked to him or whatever he witnessed or saw there. But he also has all this going for him, this stuff about the old gods. Truly, he is the character with the most knowledge yet to appear directly on page. I really can't think of someone that beats that as far as a character that has like the most secrets to tell. You know, Benjen's the only other one I can really think of, but he's been on page. We have seen Benjen, (laughs) you know. Especially characters that we like, secrets that we most want to know. Like, Little Finger Varus probably have lots of secrets about some brothel owner or you yeah. know, some, you know, but things that are less relevant to the the, the central storyline or the characters that we care about. And they don't know magical stuff, really, other than maybe a yeah. couple of things. Yeah. Maybe Varus knows a thing or two, but like Littlefinger has never said a, a thing about magic or the supernatural, really. That doesn't seem like his story involves that at all. Yet. Yet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Hal and Reed that thus fits with the Isle of Faces and the Green Man in that this thing we've been teased with for a long time, and they all have a connection given uh, that aspect of the story. As we have been doing this portion of the reread, focusing on the world building, we're not, as you have seen, not just focusing on the world of ice and fire, not just the world building influences, but the influences on George himself, even when the influence is George himself. (laughs) George is influenced by his own (laughs) prior work, in other words. So let's talk about what we didn't have time for last time. The story, and seven times, never kill man. It's funny that I say that this is a reference to George himself. He did write this story, but the title is directly taken from Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book. Yay, Jungle Book, right? It's from The Law of the Jungle. And it's The Law of the Jungle is a very long poem. Well, it's not that long. Here's the excerpt that contains the title, which I think a lot of y'all will find uh, familiar and germane to A Song of Ice and Fire in many ways. I'll do my best with this here. Yeah. (laughs) Make you do your best poet right here, Sean. (laughs) If ye kill before midnight, be silent, and wake not the woods with your bay, lest ye frighten the deer from the crop and your brothers go empty away. Ye may kill for yourselves and your mates and your cubs as they need, and ye can. But kill not for pleasure of killing, and seven times never kill a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's really cool. I really appreciate that line. George apparently has been quoted as saying other authors have approached him and being like, I should have used that line for a title. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jungle Book was written in the 1890s or something like that. So plenty of other authors have had time to borrow that title. But George was the first one to actually do it. Seven times, never kill a man. Yeah. I wonder at what point that seven number was getting into George's head. Yeah. Or how connected that might be. I wonder if even like we should consider each of the seven kingdoms and what man they killed they shouldn't have. Or <laughs> yeah, that's kind of neat. It's just obviously on its face value, it's just being emphatic. It's like... That's how important it is. <laughs> it's just like yeah. seven, it's the seven times more important than a lot of these other things. Do not kill them. And of course, the point being, like, if you kill a person, if you kill a human, the humans will go on a wolf hunt and kill lots of wolves. Only one dead human can result in dozens of dead wolves because the, the vengeance of man is fierce. And that's part of the message here. Is don't don't mess with mankind. And that, of course, is relates probably to what we were talking about with the bitterness that existed between the children and the humans for so long is you, know, you kill one person in the village and they all get fired up and 
want to take revenge and you can see how it will get out of hand there. You know, a similar thing, by the way, in like, I don't know, criminals, just don't kill a cop. Like even yeah. you know, mean, evil, greedy, ambitious, whatever, they're still like, look, you're just going to bring so much extra trouble if you kill a cop, you know? Yeah. Like uh, the whole, uh, there's a whole arc in the show Narcos, which is based on the real things that happened about how, yeah, they at one point they killed a DEA agent and it was a huge mistake, not just the the obvious unethical <laughs> nature <Yeah. laughs> of it. But like it brought so many more police and, and DEA and government funding to go after these narco terror or these narcos. So yeah, it's a similar concept. Also a little bit of a tangent, but it is worth noting that the idea of killing is still kind of serious business. You know, not, yeah. not just murder of another human, but killing in general in modern times, I don't want to, you know, start to get too political here, but it's kind of removed from us, you know, the slaughtering of cattle or whatever. We don't do it ourselves. We don't see it happening. But for most of history, it's been, there's usually some sort of ceremony connected to it. You know what I mean? It's a, a, a rite of passage or maybe even the, the the source of where prayers come from, animals are worshipped and so on. Killing them is, you don't do it for pleasure. You don't, it's no small thing, but definitely don't kill a man. You know? like, <laughs> right. So this whole notion that there's a like a law of the land, like a, a hierarchy within nature is, is something that George clearly has thought about. It comes up and it may come up yet still some more. But we've already had a few tastes of it. Here's a really particularly cool passage from A Storm of Swords, Aria 12. The sound of horses turned her head. Men, they were coming from downwind. So she had not smelled them, but now they were almost here. Men on horses with flapping black and yellow and pink wings and long, shiny claws in hand. Some of her younger brothers bared their teeth to defend the food they'd found, but she snapped at them until they scattered. That was the way of the wild. Deer and hares and crows fled before wolves, and wolves fled from men. She abandoned the cold white prize in the mud where she had dragged it and ran and felt no shame. Felt no shame. That's a, a great addition to that whole passage there. Now it's just, that's just the way of it. There's no shame in following the laws of nature and, and doing what all other animals have done before. Of course, it's kind of ironic. This is Nymeria who also has just like straight up attacked people and led her wolves to assault like the brave companions, like armed men on horses. So... She's able to break out of that because she's massively larger than most wolves. <laughs> she's... Maybe there was no shame in it, but there was also no bravery in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but also no recklessness in it, you know. So I, I would think maybe the Rudyard Kipling's wolves might have had different laws if they were the size of Nymeria. <laughs> <laughs> it might also depend on the number of men coming and yeah. whether they're horsed and armored and etc. So with Arya in her mind, that's part of it. And this, of course, this body in this case is Catelyn. So it's also a very sad passage. The, the so-called prize that she's dragging out of the mud there. So, and seven times never kill man. Uh, nominated for the Hugo for the not for novelette in 1975. A novelette is, what was the, it was like 7,500 to 1,200 words or something like that, or 17,000, something like that. It's a very specific range of, of size there. So while it contains some similar elements regarding the world building, as you'll see, as we discussed with regards to the Orson Scott card books that we sussed out for comparisons, this predates that. And it's touching on some of the same material because that stuff was in the early 80s. This is 1975. So it serves as a reminder. Don't be too sure that one thing influenced another. 
um, because sometimes they have a common influence. So there's a, some familiar names. Some of you will recognize here. The planet that N7 Times Never Kill Man is set on is, is Corlos, which is Corlos, son of Castor, who founded Casterly Rock in A Song of Ice and Fire legendarium. So, of course, this is the Thousand Worlds universe of George R. R. Martin's that he has set stories like Dying of the Light, Tough Voyaging, things like that. Also, the, there's a river called the White Knife on Corlos that's uh, part of this story, and it features the phrase, winter is coming. So that's nice. But the, be- the best comparison is the Jane She, who are furry, unlike the children of the forest. The children of the forest have some fur, but they're not like hairy like these guys. These guys are like really furry. Uh, but they're small and golden-eyed and forest-dwelling and primitive. That is very similar to the children. They're known for carved wooden statues, it's kind of the similar to the Weirwood faces, but in a way it's the opposite because the POV character is oddly drawn to them upon first seeing them. Whereas the faceless men, I mean, <laughs> faceless men, first men, <laughs> and were freaked out by the wooden faces. So it's still a, the opposite form of fascination. You know, they're really, instead of really drawn to them, they're really freaked out by them. But of course, eventually even the first men came to see them as an object of worship too. In this story, they worship pyramids. Each Jane She tribe sort of centers around a pyramid, and the pyramid contains a god. The pyramid is each each pyramid is a different god, and perhaps most importantly, these pyramids project mind altering powers. It's not supernatural; it's ancient alien technology. So that's a big difference from a Song of Ice and Fire, but it, it ends up in the same similar place. Hey, who says ancient alien technology couldn't be supernatural? Hey, you know what? You, you make a good point. Maybe ancient aliens planted the weirwood trees. Who knows? Maybe they engineered the children of the forest. Who knows? Who knows? So, but these mind, this mind altering that these pyramids project is a lot of it comes into during dreams and it stokes their religious beliefs. So... That's really, really similar. <laughs> and that also maybe is a, a similarity to how the first men eventually started to worship something that they feared because it's showing them what they want to see. And that is, well, that's a pretty powerful way to phrase something if you're talking about religious belief. You've got two things. You've got someone who's religious or susceptible to religious belief, like wanting to believe. And then you have something that shows them exactly what they want to see. Well, <laughs> you've got a closed loop there, don't you? John, what were your what are some of your thoughts on on this story? I've got a few more things to say about it, of course, but uh, I don't want to just give a big summary here. I want to. Yeah, it. I'm also careful to not spoil it too yeah, much. Yeah, we don't want to spoil it too much. I read it, and it's uh, and I've said this many times. I think if it's really good, it can't be quote spoiled. You know, like it doesn't matter how it ends. But it is a lot of the stories. I don't know. Appeal comes from how it sums up, if you will, mm-hmm. and and I'm still kind of pondering it myself. I'm still trying to sussed it all out in my mind, the elements of the story itself, but also the parallels to Martin's other writings here. But but one quick thought is, I I believe, like I'm sure there's probably a lot of interpretation out there. I haven't really researched this. I don't know how long ago, uh, how how much you dug into a disease, or you've only read it like a week ago. I only read it a day ago, so we might not exactly agree. I don't even think we disagree necessarily. But anyway, (laughs) uh, how big the pyramids are, in my mind, they're small. They might be 
in fact, they might have even said it at one point. I think they're like less than 10 feet tall, maybe five feet tall. Yeah, they're like, they're bigger than a person. Egyptian pyramids. Right, yeah. yeah, That's an important Um, clarification. You're right. I should have said that. When I say pyramid, people probably assume really big things, but yeah. And I haven't decided in my mind if they are, if the pyramids are controlling minds or if something else is controlling the pyramids. Like, I don't know what the control or source or motivation is, but... Well, originally they come from uh, the Harangans, which which were an enemy of the humans that humanity fought this hugely long destructive war against the Harangans and the Harangans were defeated. It's a lot like if you think about... Harangans, is that part of another story that Martin wrote in The Thousand Worlds or whatever? It's an ongoing part of it. Yeah. The Harangans are like... Most of The Thousand Worlds is set way after this war ended. The Harangans are still out there but they're a lot like the bugs of Robert Heinlein's Starship Troopers world where they have different casts within their society and the brain bugs, their brain harangans, they're called minds, the harangan minds, those rule it all. Like they control it. And they have like psionic power or psychic power and telekinesis and all sorts of like mind like, control stuff. But they're supposedly they're extinct and only the lesser races are still around there and they're not a threat to anyone. So again, I don't have perspective of the other stories, but is it, did these pyramids come from the harangans? Yes, or did yes. They, or did the harangans also get controlled by them? No, or... they they suppose they made them. They supposedly built them, and okay, they're in our, they're okay. just left over. This is just this was thousands of years ago that they put them here. It was part of their so if part they're of their, left like, over and and the harangans are gone, like what are they? What are they? What's directing them to control? Or what's their, the motivation or the? Well, they're self-powered. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they're still self-powered. Self-powered to what end? What are they trying to control people to do? Well, they, well, you or, saw what or, happens to the Steel Angels at the end. Okay, let's let's give a little more context right. here. The Steel Angels are a militant religious worshippers of Bacalon, the Pale Child, which Bacalon is in the world of. Song of Ice and Fire as a god of Essos. And the Steel Angel- Angels also have a lot. I didn't realize that, by the way. Okay, okay. yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the same god, although not yeah, the same you, world. Yeah, if you look at the uh, map of Essos, how Michael Clarfeld did a pantheon of the gods, that's one of the people, the, the angels, yeah, a small pale child. One of them. Uh, okay. And the Steel Angels are a comp to the Andals, who came bearing steel. The first ones were wielding steel in Westeros. but And they were a better comparison than the first men in some ways because the first men weren't zealots, right? They weren't religious zealots. They just had their own beliefs that they eventually changed. The, the, the Andals were fairly zealous when they came over in their worship of the seven. And <clears throat> so they, the Steel Angels start to see what they want to see from these pyramids, et cetera. But if you recall, Sean, in this story, the weapons master guy reminds the, the proctor, the head of the Steel Angels group, he's like, the Harangans had these devices that would put dreams into people's minds, show them what they wanted to see and lead them to self-destruction, lead them to do things that were against their okay, own interests. Yeah. So it's just, it's just like, it's psychological warfare, but, basically. But it doesn't seem like that's happening to the, the Jainshi. They're not being led to self-destruction. Well, in a sense, so they were. Is, in a sense, they were. You could argue that they were. Like, they found peace within it, but they were, they've been a Stone Age race for thousands of years. They're, they've been kept yeah, primitive. Yeah, I guess maybe how you defend self-destruction. Well, Maybe they're not stagnation. a threat to the Krangans. Let's put it that right. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Their okay. Stone so Age they're, race they're, is never going to be a threat to someone who can make these things, <laughs> you know? They're, they're Right. They're, they're maybe not going to become extinct, but they're not going to develop. They're not right. going to invent guns and spaceships and whatever else. And yeah, you're so. right. You're, like you said, they're hyper-peaceful. So that's per- perfect. It doesn't matter whether they're like destroyed or ultra submissive. It's that's the same result basically yeah. as far as some conquering evil alien race is going to see that it's somewhat, you know, to them that's a, that's a totally cromulent result. So, 
I, I guess was some of my thoughts where my brain was spinning out and I, this is almost definitely tinfoily, you know, but <laughs> it's maybe even been directly refuted. I'm probably not the first to think of this, but so one, the pyramids seem to be able to change form, or at least appearance. Well, they project, yeah, it's like they project out right? like the gods or whatever. And yeah. so, mm-hmm. and they, and apparently they're scattered all around. Yes. And at one point, I don't think they were describing the pyramids. I wish I could remember a little better because I didn't go back and review and double check everything. But I just remember a black stone slab being described, mm-hmm. which of course immediately makes me think of <laughs> the black stone. obelisk in 2001 yeah. and the oily black stone and the different stone structures in Westeros. And it made me think when we're already talking about the sea stone chair, is it possible that that's a quote, it would have been about the same size as one of these pyramids, but a different form. And so I wonder if that's just what the Iron Islanders wanted to see or the first men wanted to see? Could that be something that changed form in different places around the world? Could it be affecting? Could it be, can, could it be, it makes less sense when you think of it as being directing people to be pacified in some way for it to be affecting the Iron Islanders. Right. <laughs> but maybe it is destructive for the Iron Islanders to keep rebelling against the more powerful. Well, I think, more, I think know? we need to strip, we definitely need to strip any notion that it's coming from another world. Because George has been adamant about that. It's not, this is not in the Thousand Worlds. The planet, Planetos does not exist in that universe. Okay. It's not, despite the same God, Bacalon, that's not, he, he's adamant. And George doesn't lie. He'll, if he doesn't want to tell you something, he just will say no comment. He doesn't flat out say He'll no, say it's or, not yeah. this. He doesn't, that's not his pattern at all. So if, if, he, if that is the case here, it's, it's, going to be a huge surprise because it goes against... Yeah. To be clear, I'm world. not necessarily trying to tie this into that world. I agree, but I think... I, the world, I, yeah. This thing can have some sort of like effect on people around it or whatever. I think, I think that's it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you're, you're on to kind of where I was at with it, which is that if it's getting into their dreams, if it's affecting how they believe it, that would go a long way to explain why the first men went from a fear of the old gods to worshiping them. If this over... Like, it's a lot slower process than this... Sh- novelette. <laughs> but of course, even, even in the novelette, a lot of time passes, but still. Isn't it like a, I don't know, a belief at least that lead in the water in Rome might have been driving some of the, the yeah, oh the yeah, Caesar's crazy. Yeah. Maybe the sea stone chair is like, has uranium in it or something. Sure. Maybe some radiation yeah. that's making whoever sits in it have some form of insanity. Or, or maybe even magical. Like, yeah, doesn't have to be like, doesn't have to be a yeah. scientific explanation yeah. or like a little both. Like that's how often how we, we yeah. don't need yeah. to think of it as one or the other. It can be a little of both. Yeah. Uranium's kind of magical. <laughs> it's pretty weird, right? <laughs> it's, it's awfully like, what the? So that's pretty cool. I like that story a lot. It's really, really neat. And I highly recommend it, y'all. Like Sean said, it's it's not a, what did you t- take you like an hour and a half to read it? Two hours? It's not a not a big investment, right? Yeah, a couple hours. Yeah. I'm not a particularly fast reader, and and a, gives you a lot to think about. Yeah, Those things. To and yeah, it is yeah stirring. And I, I also I don't know a few times I had to go back and like wait which character is this you know <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and sometimes realize when he was like uh, making scene changes or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, those aren't complaints. That I don't know if uh, just the nature of reading sometimes right. what makes you want to go back or stop and think or whatever. But. So one thing that happens in the story that we see is if the Jane Sheik tribe loses their particular clan pyramid, they they change. They become sort of rogue wanderers. They become more violent and more aggressive and lose this sort of peacefulness that the Jane Sheik tend to have, this nonviolence and this sort of almost pacifism. Now, this could be a little bit of like what the children are. Like if they revered certain trees, especially if they associated them with certain long dead individuals, 
that they had a specific tie to, especially if they were like a family member, something like that. And that, that, that I'm not saying that like it's a one-to-one model, but it may also explain like the children who attacked the humans that cut down the first werewoods. May, it may have not just been a religious like, hey, that's burning a church. That's our, and that was my ancestor, right? That was specifically someone I knew. I specifically worshiped them. Like I had a, more than just a religious connection. That was a family member of mine, something like so that. So sort of personal revenge, you mm-hmm. know, like a- Exactly. When the, I don't know, one of the central characters speculated that the Jane Shi didn't have the same curiosity to uh, cause him to, he, 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 he realized how little questions they were asking him. And it made me think about the children of the forest, maybe why they didn't venture across the land bridge to Essos. Maybe they just didn't have curiosity, they whether it was their they culture needed, yeah. or the effect of the werewood. They, were they don't want to go away from them, or, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the yeah, same thing anyway. here. The Janshi don't want to leave their pyramids. Yeah, so it's like unthinkable. So it could be maybe not quite so strict for the children, but something along those lines. It's really, uh, yeah, it hits pretty hard here. Now, and, and what else happened, Sean? What, you mentioned that this, the Steel Angels, like the pyramids aren't very big. They take one of the pyramids inside in their own city, right? Like the Trojan horse. Yeah, yeah kind of <laughs> like the Trojan horse. It's not filled with warriors, but it does change them from within and is, is like bringing, kind of inviting their own doom. And... This reminds me how the first men eventually started making God's woods. They part a heart tree right in the center or right as a yep. huge important part of their the center of their culture. Each individual castle is like the capital of a region. You know, the Andals are like those pesky kids. The children of the forest <laughs> plan almost worked. <laughs> so now here's something fun. This is a slightly off topic, but it does relate to the Jane Chi and does relate to George R. R. Martin. O'Shea is going to put some artwork up on screen here. This is... Art from the 70s, 1975. This is a concept art for the Jane Shi next to Ralph McQuarrie's artwork for Chewbacca. You will see mm-hmm. an astonishing similarity Whoa. here. <laughs> the Jane Shi look like low-tech Chewbacca. The guys, eat, they have the same furriness, the same like texture in their hair. The guy's even carrying a crossbow like Chewbacca's bowcaster. Chewbacca a, doesn't have all those udders, though. Yeah, Chewbacca doesn't have udders. These guys have udders, so they're, well, they're, I guess you they're know, not guys if they have udders, but I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they are. <laughs> I hadn't seen this artwork. I hadn't seen this comparison. And as you said, I know you can't see me right now, but I'm wearing my my Star Wars Winnie the Pooh mashup nice. with Han Solo's Christopher Robin and Chewbacca is Winnie the Pooh. And it, it's a similar kind of a <laughs> <That's fantastic. laughs> Jane look that young... <laughs> Winnie the Pooh Chewbacca has. <laughs> he even has the crossbow. So what, what happened was, if, if I remember this correctly, this art was drawn for the Jane Shi. It was the cover of Amazing Stories magazine. Ralph McQuarrie, who drew Chewbacca for the original Star Wars, he had this much different thing in mind. He had this com- wildly different idea for Chewbacca at first. And it's I encourage you to look it up. It's it's creepy. It's so different. You're like, whoa, can you picture Chewbacca looking like that? It'll blow your mind. But George Lucas was like, nah, this is what I have in mind. And he described basically the Jane Shi. And so Ralph McQuarrie was like, all right, well, I'm going to, you know, kind of borrow this. And that's where, <laughs> where it ended up is Chewbacca. So George R. You know, Martin very indirectly been... inspired Chewbacca. I mean, you really got to give credit to the artist, but still it was George gets a little part of the credit here. <laughs> By the way, yeah. I just want to say this, the original art for Chewbacca, the original concept art, there's a character in Star Wars that is inspired by that original design. Oh, okay. Zeb mm. from Star Wars Rebels. Oh, cool. So that, that, that design still yeah, made it. Yeah, typical Star Wars faction. Just fa- not Chewbacca. Faction, they, 
they they reuse some designs. That's smart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with Star when it's Star Wars, you got like such a high demand for new stuff. Like, huh, we got we need, we can't we can't throw any idea out. <laughs> we no. got to consider everything. We need so much content. I was wondering, do you think that was directly? Do you think Lucas read the Jane Shee? It's entirely possible. Because like, that was 1975, this came out. Star Wars is 1977. Yeah. Like, it's highly likely, I think. It's entirely I mean, this was a... This did... Right, like, it was nominated for the Hugo, so... <laughs> God, like, uh, I, yeah, I feel like it's very possible that George Lucas was reading the Hugos. Yeah, like, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not unlikely yeah. at all. It's not like there's lots of other internet things from to have been reading at the time. Because <laughs> there was, you know, <laughs> no internet. Also, there are just way fewer conventions and just fewer sci-fi properties in general back then. So, yeah, I think it's. I think you're right. I would guess if I had to guess, I would definitely say yes. I'd say he probably was aware of that. So that's pretty cool. A little George R. R. Martin connection to Star Wars there. If we're thinking about this whole technological thing, this stasis of technology, like that's also been President Westeros, hasn't it? Like the children were kept in a Stone Age version of themselves, which maybe that's what they want. But they're in like the Iron Age, basically. And, and, and in the First Men era, it was Bronze Age, basically. And it was Bronze Age for a lot, lot longer than Earth's Bronze Age was, I think, right? I mean, dates are a little no. skewy here, but still. I think it is, but I, I've actually thought about this. It was even brought up in uh, the comments on last week's video. I guess the Bronze um, Age is pretty long. That one... Humans went thousands of years without progressing very much. Oh, yeah. We've even brought this up. 5,000 years ago, the fastest way to get from point A to point B was on a horse. Yeah. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, the fastest way to get to it. Yeah. 100 years ago, the fastest way to get from point A to point B was a horse. So, like, it might have been a little more extended in this world of ice and fire, but not like, it's not 10 times longer. It's yeah. like maybe 20% longer. And add to that too, like even when humans did come up with, I don't know, a couple key uh, inventions in human history, like arguably two of the top five or 10 would be like the printing press and gunpowder, we'll say. Sure. Well, those still took thousands of years to be, from the time we built to the, the freaking pyramids, like a wonder of the world to the printing press was thousands of years. Literally, yeah. And right. even once we did, even once we had gunpowder and the printing press, no one in North America or South America knew about it for hundreds of years. True. Most of the world hardly, most of Europe hardly knew the printing press was there for a long, it didn't matter that it had been invented for a long, long time. Partly because it just takes a while for the technology and information to spread. Partly because sometimes it's specifically suppressed. Mm. Like printing the Bible would get you burned at the stake. You know what I mean? Like there was, it's, I can, I, it, to me, it's not that crazy to think that Westeros even came up with a printing press or, or the, you know, planetos or whatever. And no one knows about it. It's just in some city state that hasn't released that technology or that the maesters know about it, but they're keeping it under wraps because it might be a threat to their power because they want to make sure they get it hashed out before they release it. Uh, you could go on and on yeah. with the different reasons that it might have, a technology might have been come up with and secluded or lost or suppressed. And, and, and I don't think it, there might even be a, a little bit of luck to the time of when humans came up with it and that it spread like ancient Egyptians had running water. They had plumbing that, mm -hmm. that yeah. came and went. You know, like hundreds of years later, Paris is still has dysentery because they're just throwing their poop out in the streets. <laughs> the ancient Egyptians had running water they plumbing in their houses. Out, yeah. You know, so to me, it's not that weird or crazy. The technological state, the West Coast. Yeah, out. right on. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that weird either. I kind of agree with you. There's some aspects of it you can nitpick, but as a whole, yeah, I don't think it's. It's, it's not preposterous. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. 
So let me throw a hat tip shout out to Cantus, who is the originator of the night lamp theory that we mentioned in our collab with Brendan B. Fish on our Battle of Ice episodes from many years ago. He wrote quite a bit on And Seven Times Never Kill Man, and I read his thoughts on it. So check that out if you are so inclined. If you want more on And Seven Times Never Kill Man and some related theories, here's a couple theories that I hadn't considered. I've, like you said, Sean, I read this story last week, but I'd also read it years, you know, like 10 years ago. But, and I thought about a lot of this back then. And a couple of things I hadn't thought about that I want to give Cantu's credit for is our false visions being sent to anyone else. Like we have this idea of false visions introduced within the story. And like one of the first people you think of who's dealing with false visions is Melisandre. Especially when she was first introduced, people thought she was straight up lying. Now, nowadays, that's now that we've had her POV, there's no indication that she's like blatantly lying just to serve her own purposes. But she's genuinely believes most of what she's doing. Her lies are just to get people on board for proofs that she thinks are coming later. Was she ever lied to? Did she get false visions? Same thing with Danny, who's had quaith in her head, maybe through glass candles or not. Is any of that, is that all true? Or is someone manipulating her? Or is it a little of both? Bran had visions right away uh, from Bloodraven when he's in a coma. Now, those are also, there's some manipulation going on there, probably for a good purpose, but it's mostly true. But it's not all true, and it's not all straightforward. Like, for example, at one point, they're just talking about, can I have some corn in his dream? So it's very metaphorical. It's not, right? So there's, there's definitely room <laughs> to, to editorialize within these dreams or to make things up. It's not all just straight images of reality. Or to make errors. Yeah, very true. So right? lies, errors, omissions. Exactly. So there's all sorts of, like, this fits really whatever well. Quaith, whatever Quaith's trying to communicate to Danny, even if Quaith is uh, genuine, she still might be making an error. Yeah, and yeah. Even if she's genuine and not making an error, Danny might still misinterpret it. But when you you, you know when you think about like the potential motivations of the person sending the vision or their own misinterpretations of what the vision is supposed to mean, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Even more difficult and complicated for us to interpret or believe or whatever. Yeah, like we know, for example, Melisandre sees Blood Raven and Bran and thinks, oh, they must be servants of the Great Other. Well. No, probably not. <laughs> but that's just her interpretation. And it just goes to show how easy these things can get off track. You see a wolf-headed boy and a thousand-eyed demon face, and you're like, yeah, those are probably bad guys. And you're like, all right, that's <laughs> not entirely unreasonable. <laughs> but in this case, you are probably wrong. <laughs> so, and even John has visions like when John had his first Werewood dream, it's intense. It's like, seems to have been sent to him. Bran appears in it and talks to him. And then Bran later thinks about how he was in the dark. And I, one time I even talked to John and all this other stuff. So he seems aware of it, even though he's not as cognizant of it as you might expect him to be having for someone who intentionally went into someone else's dreams, which has spawned theories about that not being current Bran, but future Bran going back, going into John's head, but which is a whole nother topic. But the point being, getting into someone's head, giving them visions, true or false, is absolutely a thing in A Song of Ice and Fire. Even if we don't fully understand it, the mechanism or the purpose of it, it's definitely there. And that's really interesting and is certainly a connection to this early story of George's. One yeah. last thing also from Cantus that they, that they pointed out was the familiarity of the Arya and Ned Wolfpack speech. When Ned gives Arya the, the pack, survives the lone wolf 
does not. That that is very much reflected in this story as well, because the the, the Jane Shi that lose their pyramid become kind of aimless wanderers, and they don't really survive. They don't have that community. They don't they don't survive the hard times without each other. I and the did. ones that are able to stick to their ways, the Jane Shi that like stick to their guns, huh, bad bad phrasing there. Stick to their guns because they're pacifists. <laughs> are and it kind of works out for them. I, so I have included the link to that Cantu's essay in the chat. If you're oh, thanks, um, watching yeah. on YouTube, you can click the chat. You'll see a lot of good stuff in there, as well as some expansion on some other theories. Let's talk about the God's Eye. This big old lake. It's placed near Harrenhal, which, of course, did not exist <laughs> in this time. Well, Harrenhal was only built 300 years ago, so it's, it's relatively recent in terms of these things. But the God's Eye is like Harrenhal would be. You can almost see why it was placed there as a place to establish rule, because it's the center, like almost the dead center of Westeros itself. The Trident, which is the largest river, is just north of it. The Isle of Faces is kind of like a pupil in the eye of the god there. And really, it's it's massive. All the other lakes in Westeros combined don't look large enough to match it. In the south, there's places like Red Lake and Leafy Lake. There's a big lake near Stony Sept. In the north, there's a huge lake near Torrin Square. There's Long Lake, which is really big, which is near where there was a battle where Artosi Implacable slew uh, the Raymond Redbeard. That's kind of near the Umberlands. But not even close to the size of the God's Eye. Aziz, I think you mentioned at one point that... Can you see, were you speculating or has it been said somewhere that you can see the island in the middle of the lake? Can you see that from the from the coast? I'm not sure it's visible after all. So let's talk about that briefly, why I feel that way and why maybe I've changed my tune on that. Okay, so I have some notes on lake sizes here. Yeah, I think like the Great Lakes are like 100 miles apart. And if you can only see 14-ish miles to the horizon... I don't think you could see an island in the middle of the Great Lakes. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know if the, the God's Eye is supposed to be that big or not. But Yes, yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna revise my estimate that you probably can't see the island from the shore. Uh, okay, so Which he, might also make it more of, a, more, I don't know, more of an explanation as to why less people venture there. Yeah. Now, according to some math that Nina shared with me from our friend Adam Whitehead, Wordhead, great member of the community, has done a lot of work in particular on maps and uh, stuff like this. In fact, his blog is called Atlas of Ice and Fire. Very worth checking out. So I highly suggest that, Atlas of Ice and Fire. That's his website. Now, he estimates based on travel time and distances and map stuff that the God's Eye is about 8,800 square miles, whereas Long, and Long Lake, for reference, would be about 1,800 square miles. Lake Superior, which is the largest surface area in the world, has... A lot more. It's like 37,000. So it's way bigger. So this is, as far as like real world lakes, the God's Eye isn't actually that big compared to some Earth lakes. But it's still... Although it is worth huge. noting, Lake Superior is really, it's hard, it's hard to comprehend. The Great Lakes combined, all, all of them put together have 21% of the world's freshwater. And... The, but the uh, Lake Superior has the largest surface area. Lake Baikal is actually the biggest lake in the world. It's way bigger than even Lake Superior, even though it has a smaller surface area. It's twenty. Like kind of for the depth of the water. Yeah, or? it's twenty-two okay. percent of the world's fresh water by itself. Whereas all the Great Lakes combined are less than that. So Baikal is bigger than all the Great Lakes combined. <laughs> it's it's massive. It's also twenty-five to thirty million years old and is a rift lake. Now, you were talking about tectonic plates in a, in a prior episode, Sean. Rift lakes mm -hmm. are formed 
by like at the junction of plates. So they're, they can be massively deep and, and, and just massive in general. Oh, yeah. Whereas... Where I think the Great Lakes were carved out by glaciers. Absolutely. You're completely right. The Great Lakes are... Baikal is like 25 to 30 million years old, where the Great Lakes are like 14,000 years old. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's more different. that's more likely what we're dealing with here because the Great Lakes are not insanely deep. They're like no more than hundreds of feet deep, whereas Baikal is like a mile deep at its deepest. And we know that the, that the skeleton of Vagar went into, well, living, Vagar died in the God's eye and was hauled out. Like body was hauled out many years later. So it, it couldn't be a mile deep, I don't think. I don't think Westeros has the technology to recover a body that deep. <laughs> so this makes sense to me that it would like there would have been some glacial melt in, in Westeros and it formed this lake. Yeah. So anyway, that's our fun thing about lakes there. Can I say a thing about lakes? You then? should say a thing about well, lakes. Well, actually, it's connected to this. Anyways, it's uh, more about the idea that there can be times of the year, there can be times where they could see the God's eye and they couldn't otherwise. And oh, that's really? because of what's called a superior mirage, which is where when there's uh, warm air rests on this layer of cold air, of cool air, it bends light rays. And oh. so there was this period of time, for example, recently this this year, where in Canada, up in British Columbia, they, they saw this, these people just photographed an iceberg. And they're like, why is there an iceberg here? Well, it was because of a superior mirage that was showing them something much farther away. Oh, Isn't that wild? That is wild. So yeah, there is. Yeah. Uh, it is possible that there's land off the coast that you would see never except for during this mirage. And of course, that would not not take away from the notion that this is a magical place. <laughs> that could even area. add to the mystique of the 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 riverlands, the oh, what are you know, the, the Kranigmen, they're they're moving islands. Oh yeah. You know, oh, they're moving castles or whatever. Good call. That's a nice thing to relate to that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that, that's, where, that's where they live. Oh, I like that. Yes, that's really neat. I like that idea. So, yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. And, and Nina adds a note here. She wonders if Lomas Longstrider, the great explorer, ever visited the God's Eye and what he would have thought of it. I would have to assume yes. I mean, the guy went to the Vale. He went to Ashai, probably. So you'd think he would go to the God's Eye. But the Isle of Faces, though, that I would doubt. So and she also notes the largest lake in the world seems to be the Poison Sea near the Bone Mountains, which maybe isn't a lake, depends on how you classify it. But some people classify the Great Lakes as inland seas and not lake. Let the geologists, or whatever the proper term, argue over the the, the, the terminology. Point is, huge nerds. bodies of water. Nerds, nerds. <laughs> Wait, we're nerds. Damn. We're nerds. You're right. We should argue about the definition. <laughs> there's, there's a chance that he would have named it um, a natural wonder of the world. Maybe not quite, though. Maybe isn't quite impressive enough. But it's it's super cool, and I'm I'm really interested in if we ever get more from Lomas Longstrider. It would be one of the features of Westeros that the God's Eye and the Isle of Faces might be something that he would talk about. The Isle of Faces itself, let's talk about that. The God's Eye is a lake. We don't have a whole lot to say about it besides its, its largeness, its grandness. Let's talk about the features. So as far as quotes go, well, here's one regarding children. It is possible that a few survived on the Isle of Faces, as some have written, under the protection of the Green Men, whom the Andals never succeeded in destroying. But again... No definitive proof has ever been found. So, of course, that's another example of Eandel coming up short on the supernatural because we know the children are alive. We don't know if they're on the Isle of Faces. So that part, he's right to be to express a lack of knowledge. But it's not a bad theory that they are there given they exist elsewhere. So 
one thing, there's a couple of peculiarities about it is the fact that it's just so undervisited. People can't go there. In terms of lakes on islands, I don't think there's any islands in any of like the Great Lakes, but Lake Baikal has islands. That can happen. So uh, it's peculiar that few people can go there, but on the other hand, maybe there isn't a whole lot of reason to want to go there. Like if there's no natural resources, if it's difficult to get to, then there's not a it lot of motivation. A silly place. Yeah, it is a silly place. <laughs> <laughs> one, uh, one thing is that there's, if there's a lot of werewoods there, you might've thought maybe Heron the Black would want to go there to take the werewoods because he, he cut down so many werewoods when he was building Heron Hall. But that you could see why that would be a logistical difficulty. Like, first of all, even getting ships to go there, then cutting them down and hauling them all the way back, that may not work out so well. So as far as cost and efficiency, that he may have declined. But there may be other reasons. Now, here's the, uh, the quote from Catelyn. Now, Catelyn's a Game of Thrones one. As, as we mentioned at the beginning here, these things were introduced right away. So right in Cat's first chapter, we get this line. In the South, the last werewoods had been cut down or burned out a thousand years ago, except on the Isle of Faces, where the green men kept their silent watch. Mm, this is kind of neat. Like, we haven't talked about cats chapters in quite a while, but it's a bit of a reversal because the one of the many things Catelyn's early chapters do is establish her as the one person who's got a POV who lives in the North that isn't from the North. Right, that's an important, very important distinction. Because Ned, all the creepiness of the North, is familiar to people like Ned and Bran, and people, someone like Tyrion isn't there very long, and he's not privy to these secrets. Like he doesn't go to the Godswood and and feel unwelcome. Well, he would feel unwelcome, but Catelyn feeling unwelcome in her own home, where Ned's like, "You should feel welcome here. You have Northern children." Blah blah blah. So she's our window into this strange world of the North that seems normal to them. So it's important for her to have lines like this. It's a good place for that to be established. But <laughs> what makes that interesting is she's the like stranger in a strange land thing. The Isle of Faces and the Green Men are from where she's from. <laughs> that's from the Riverlands, right? That's her, that's her territory. That's the Tullys rule the Riverlands, right? So that's, that's the reversal there. Instead of the creepy strangeness of the North, where this may all end is in the South, where she's from, where her family ruled. And that takes us to Bran a bit. Start thinking about how Bran fits into all that and where Bran may, may end up, which is not necessarily in Winterfell. He may end up in the South. He does have that look, doesn't he? Something my mind's been spinning on for the past week or so. Yeah. I watched a video. There's a girl, I think her name is Jessica, maybe Jessica Lydell. I wish I could remember the YouTube channel to give more credit. But anyway, she, she had a video about Sansa, but part of it was she pointed out that, who was Caitlin's mother? Minissa Went. Went. Yeah, Went. Oh, Went. Yes. And is there any history of insanity among the Wents? Well, there's history of problems with all the families at Harrenhal, and that's the family. That, that was the family okay. that held Harrenhal yeah. at the beginning of the, of the series. Yeah. And she pointed out that there's, I don't know quite the right word to use, but impulsiveness, unevenness, uh, streak of madness. So Edmir maybe was a little like impulsive in his attack that kind of ruined Rob's plans, sure, right? Yeah. Caitlin, a little impulsive, arresting Tyrion. Lysa, this is a, a little Very impulsive, straight up yeah, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and think about the Stark kids. They all have different little bits of uh, Rickon is a little quick and Shaggy Dog a little quick to aggressiveness. Rand's 
maybe a little a little too bold climbing around yeah, everywhere. He's not aggressive, but he, Robs, is, he is brave. Yeah. Ready to charge off to war Rob's and take over the north. Mm-hmm. Like Arya, of course, maybe the most extreme. Sansa is really the only one, but she hasn't been in position to. She was very eager to just marry the prince, even though she didn't know what a crazy yeah, went, person went, he was. She went and told but, up, you know, told the... Uh, she's done some impulsive yeah, things, though. She yeah, she was impulsive. Yeah. yeah. But that, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know if they're unusual uh, for a 12-year-old. The thing I'll say but, here, just to yeah. cut in here, is also that there's one Stark that was known for his impulsivity. is Brandon Stark. It's from the previous the generation. Brand, is the one yeah. that Catelyn yeah. almost Ned's married. Brother. The yeah. Brandon. Um, yeah. That's very true. Ned doesn't seem to be very particularly impulsive. No, he's please, <laughs> or maybe the Wentz. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's she or whoever is reading too much into it. But anyway, just a thought. Yeah. And uh, it was also interesting to think along this lines too. Just going a little further, think about how Sansa has been the most restrictive from her ability to be impulsive. Like the other Stark kids, for the most part, have had some amount of agency and things haven't turned out where she's been effectively a prisoner the whole time. But yeah. anyway, sorry, just a little tangent, just thinking about that kind of connection that I, I never really pieced together, that there might be a streak of madness in the Tollies that maybe came from the Wentz. Mm. Yeah, it's anyway. possible. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's very interesting. I take offense to any hate on the losses, the wins, anyone. Maybe, maybe you could replace impulsive with bold, and it's not as, as hateful. <laughs> <laughs> so these Stark children have uh, this this sort of dual heritage. Uh, John's, of course, is a little different. He has dual heritage too. It just doesn't connect to the Riverlands like the others do. Now uh, I've only and now remember what they all look like. You mentioned the look, like Arya of of Catelyn's children. Only Arya looks like Ned. Whereas Rob and Rick and, and, and Brandon Sansa all have auburn hair and blue eyes. And what does that mean? Maybe not a lot, but one thing that occurs to me, I, I, know, I remember tweeting about this a lot and you know, having a lot of brand, King brand thoughts after season eight or what have you, and talking about how the three colors of the trident are blue, red, and green. And there's this phrase in the world of Ice and Fire right around uh, the Riverlands section that talks about an ancient figure called the Green King of the God's Eye. And well, if Bran's a green seer and a king and has blue hair or blue hair, <laughs> blue eyes and and red hair, then he's got all those colors matching. It, it just lines up really nicely. It, it just might be coincidence, but if his fate is around that zone, if he's going to rule or or control or what have you, it fits so well. Him being a green king and having his kingdom emanate from the gods. I remember what we talked about earlier at the beginning of this episode. What if King's Landing is destroyed or no longer the seat of power? Well, you'd have to establish a new one. And well, if it's if if it's Brand's the guy, well, where is he going to choose? Maybe he'll choose something along those lines, something near the god's eye. God's eye itself would be a little too ivory tower-ish. Mm. You know what I mean? I, I don't yeah, know maybe. if that would be a wise choice. And he might not necessarily make the wise choice. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not a good place. Like, I'm, I doubt the actual Isle of Faces would be a good place to have your seat of power because, you know, like, how do you communicate with people? <laughs> ravens. Yeah, just ravens. Send them out there. Everyone, <laughs> all, all orders are sent via raven around the world, <laughs> around the country. And Nina wonders, given this, this, the reverence for the Isle of Faces, if there was any additional religious clout in ancient times for kings in the Riverlands, uh, especially if they claimed this territory as part of their domain, like House Mud or House Fisher or any of these, any of these places like that. And she, she wonders if the place Misty Isle, which was the seat of ancient of House Fisher, was near the Isle Faces, which we don't know where House Fisher ruled from, but it's entirely possible. Uh, whether their seat was near here or not, they may have claimed the Isle of Faces or that God's Eye as part of their domain. Certainly some people would have. Certainly some kings and queens would have. And that might be give them extra a religious authority or you know, it's like controlling the 
the biggest cathedrals or controlling the like the, the the town the city where the big churches are or something like that like the where the where the the church has its like the Vatican power. oh yeah that's a great example like controlling <laughs> the Vatican sure like control like old towns the example of that in Westeros but in ancient times this would have looked a little differently there before the seven worship was different religion was different so we're talking about the green men specifically if we work our way up to them as a topic. Are they perhaps the first human worshipers of the old gods or perhaps the first humans that got access to the secrets of the children, the first one that they started sharing with? Was it part of the deal, right? In exchange for you no longer killing us, we'll teach you some of our magic and it'll just, we need to select certain individuals that are able to do this. They have the right disposition. Maybe you start with younger people, you know, people who aren't, so develop a willingness to eat their own children's blood. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Before they're grossed out by such things. A big topic in the second half of this episode, we're going to talk about the Night of the Laughing Tree and that story and Harrenhal and all that. But Nina suggests maybe even given that the quote says, not 10 leagues from Harrenhal, Rhaegar and Lyanna disappeared. Is it possible? Well, I think yes is the answer. Is it possible? But did it happen that they had their marriage on the Isle of Faces itself? They, it would have been a second marriage for Rhaegar, and maybe he wanted to consecrate it under a different auspice. If he's worried about the prophecies, he needs to have a child of ice and fire, all this other business. Now, this might sound far-fetched, like why the heck would they go all the way over there? But don't forget, Lyanna has met Howland Reed at this point. And Howland Reed, as we're going to describe later, claims to have been there. So he know he's been to the Isle of Faces, so he would know how to get there. And if Lyanna, a worshiper of the old gods herself, coming from an ancient family, well, you can see how this might work. I mean, it's a little far-fetched, but not. It's I wouldn't go to go so far as to call it tinfoil. And hmm, if Lyanna wasn't going to sleep with Rhaegar until they were married, and you know they had to go get married, well, this would be a, a, a real, a real way to be grand about it. Let's go get, okay, we're going to elope and go get married at this mystical isle, you know? Well, also a way to make sure there's uh, where we witness, if you will. Good call. Like a real, like a, the witness of the old gods, not just a human witness. Although if there was a human witness, maybe it was freaking Howland Reed himself, you know? So that's entirely possible. And talk about sweeping someone off their feet. Like, I'm going to take you and we're going to get married <laughs> at the Isle of Faces, baby. That's quite possible. It would be a really powerful place to have such a scene. If we come to find that out later, if Bran's looking through the werewood net and seeing the past and sees Lyanna and Rhaegar like he did on the show, they didn't tell us where that happened on the show. They just showed them saying their vows to each other. So I would imagine the book version of that, assuming we get something like that, it's going to be a lot more detailed. Now, maybe not a lot more detailed, but somewhat more detailed. And this might be a detail that's part of that. It's entirely possible they got married to somewhere else in the Riverlands, but... I don't know. I don't know. They would have wanted a heart tree. Where else are they going to get a heart tree besides a godswood? And if they're, if they elope, if they ran away, well, then what castle godswood are they going to get married at? Like that's in someone's castle. That's not eloped, right? So I don't know, Sean, what do you, what do you think about this whole marriage aspect? Yeah, it seems likely for a lot of reasons to me. Hmm. Okay, cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, all the explanations you just gave. Yeah, yeah it's it's a, pretty thorough, huh? Good, good thoughts It would have been either. romantic. It would have been epic. It would have been, I'm trying to think of the word, prophetic. That's not the word, like fulfilling. If, if Rhaegar yeah. has these fulfilling prophecies, it, mystical, you know. Uh, it would feel right to him, like he's doing what he's supposed to do, like he's fulfilling his destiny. Yeah, like I'm doing what I'm, yeah. Something along those lines. Like if, if he felt the, the pull of, of this, if he, if he had dreams, <laughs> maybe the dreams he was having were false. Although it doesn't mean they were sent by someone else. He certainly misinterpreted some things. We know that. We I think it was know. auspicious. Yeah, auspicious. Ooh, good word for that. Yes, auspicious. I also wonder if it's a hinge of the world. Remember that Melisandre introduces us to that concept at the wall. She says, this is a hinge of the world. And maybe we've taken that concept too far. Hinge of the world, maybe she was just, it's a turn of the phrase, like she just made up to describe the, the majesty of that place. But it also, it sounds like, like a hinge is the controlling of a door, the portal to another place. So imagining it as a place where magic is stronger, where a lot of people have taken that interpretation. And I tend to agree with that, at least as a as a possibility. I think we tend to think there was a hinge of the world. There's probably a few, right? Right, right behind Aziz. Yeah, in the, uh, mm-hmm. like in the Shadowlands near Ashai. That would, that's one strong theory there. So maybe there's a hinge of the world there at the, at the Isle of Faces. That would make a lot of sense, wouldn't that's it? That's how she knows A place hinges. where magic is really strong. <laughs> Melisandre <laughs> is an expert on doors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Now, if Arya brings Needle to the Isle of Faces, it becomes a syringe of the world. Ah. Uh-huh. No, 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 never mind. Okay. Now, let's do a quick real-world comparison to the Isle of Faces before we move on to the green men themselves a little farther, and then we'll take, we'll take a little break for some questions as well. We're roughly the halfway point here. Easter Island. Y'all have certainly heard of Easter Island it's kind of the real world Isle of Faces, isn't it? it? It was founded by Polynesian settlers around the year 1200 or 1250, something like that. They started building the Moai statues, which are made of volcanic ash. They actually look a lot like what Dragonstone would look like because it's black, porous rock with some red to it. And like the weirwood trees, like the heart trees with faces, they represent ancestors. The, the Polynesian people believed, these Polynesian people believed that their ancient spirits of their ancestors were imbued within these statues. That was a, a, a strong belief that they held. Very similar to the belief or the truth that ancient green seers are within these trees. The Easter Island statues are fascinating and mysterious and cause a lot of intrigue on TV shows and discovery stuff like that. But the people that came after the Moai period on this island are arguably far stranger and more interesting. So the, the period after the Moai statues stopped being built, the religion of the area had changed a little bit and modified. Something called the Tangata Manu, a birdman cult, worshiping the deity Maki Maki developed on this island. And the people of one village called Arango, at the start of each year, they swim from one island, their island, to another nearby island. And the first person to bring back an undamaged egg of the sooty turn gets to be Birdman of the Year, (laughs) winning resources (laughs) for their tribe. (laughs) That means they get like access to the, they get like better access to the these same eggs. This is a food supply, things like that. There's like 500 stone petroglyphs which are carved into the 
rock faces around there that are very clear still because the particular rock they're carved into doesn't wear very well, which is good. So these petroglyphs hang around. And apparently these are like the winners of of Birdman of the Year. (laughs) These are like their like trophy carvings. But here's the caveat. Please let the gang go. Yes, the gang needs to go (laughs) go for the city turn here. So, yeah, the sooty tern. That's a great name, right? Sooty tern. T-E-R-N. It's a type of bird, obviously. The bird eggs. But it's extremely dangerous, this thing. It's not just a race. People died all the time, falling off cliffs or being eaten by sharks. I mean, come on. (laughs) And here's another part that just blows my mind. Some of the officials, the people, there's like, they have actual prophets and prophetesses that have dreams that decide who the contestants are and who the officials are going to be. <laughs> At any point during this, did you all forget that this is a real world thing we're talking about? <laughs> this isn't fantasy. <laughs> this is this Birdman cult with prophets and dreams and sharks and <laughs> stone carvings. It all happened like 200 years ago. <laughs> so, man, that's so cool. Uh, so, you don't. sometimes you don't need to go any farther than the real world for fantastical elements like that. That could be a fantasy setting right there. I yeah, mean, it is a fantasy yeah. setting, except that it's real <laughs> or was real. So anyway, that's super cool. I had to throw that in there. As we move into our first little batch of questions and our halfway point, let's say uh, I give a shout out to our good friends over at the Isle of Faces pod. I want to give show some love to Joe Buckley and to Emily of the Erie, but in particular, Joe, who's had a, who had a pretty severe back injury and hasn't been around lately. So Want to let people know uh, know that he's in that state. And if you want to send him a message, tell him we miss him. Let him know. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. Okay, Julie A says, question for the panel. What are their thoughts on who will meet Howland and visit the Isle of Faces? Hmm, actually visiting the Isle of Faces, actually going there. I wonder if anyone will actually yeah, I guess do that. It depends on if you think Brian will actually end up there. Brand's the only one that I really feel super strongly about. I don't really think Arya and, would go there. And the other thing is that whether we, you know, going there, he could go there as a green seer and not actually physically go there, but mentally. I think as far as who will meet Howland, that is that's a good chance that's Bran or Sansa, John, any of those Starks could meet Howland. He could come to Winterfell after Winterfell is restored, especially after the Starks maybe regain power. Um, yeah, I think Stark POV as well. I, I agree with you, Brian. I guess, I guess, I, I guess, I think Sansa, John, yeah. But it's hard to suss out individually which of those to, ones. You have to think that it has is to do there, with John's parentage is, is when he'll come around. So if it's related chance, to that, yeah. Or any reason that the Brotherhood or Lady Stoneheart might go there? Yeah, directly to the aisle. Mm, it's possible. I think, yeah. But of course, we need a POV to actually see such a thing. So Yeah. yeah. I don't know why she would go there. She's not a worshiper of the old gods herself. And the magic that has brought her back seems to be a ma- the magic of her lore. So I'm not sure that yeah. fits. But it's good, it's, it's, it's good to raise that possibility. But like that, the Brotherhood is in that Riverlands area. I don't know how. I mean, it's a big area, so they might not be close. But if they... I don't know, we're retreating if they're about to be captured or if they were compelled mm. by Bran or, you know, yeah. I don't know. I guess it maybe not likely, but in the realm of possibilities. Yeah, I think. yeah. Another idea we have to consider is any of the dragon riders. Anyone who's a dragon rider has a much oh. better chance to go there because they have logistical means. They can fly, right? That's pretty straightforward. And in fact, one of the stories we have coming in the second half is a story about a dragon rider going there. 
although it's, it's sketchy whether or not that actually happened, it's suggested. So for now, let's mention that possibility. Daenerys could go there, right? I don't know what business she would have there, but that's possible. Euron could go there. If he gets a dragon, he could go there to try to like, I don't know, steal the mm. power or to just, that's what he does. He's just like, I want to find these ancient powers and make them mine or make use of them, you know, use them for my own end. So I could see that. He's just going to go torch it. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, he could try to blow it up. But yeah, that's another possibility. He wants to burn all the trees there. He wants to destroy the old gods. That's terrifying, but absolutely, Ashea is correct to mention that possibility. The other thing I want to mention is John as a possibility. John could go there if he's a dragon rider and if he's undead, well, he would have to be undead because he's been killed. He, You would think that well, there's some peculiarity with the green men that we are trying to compare to other forms of magic we've seen, like cold hands, like someone who lives really long. Like, how are the, if these green men, are they still alive after thousands of years or where are they getting new people from? If it's just, they have some small community there. I don't know. How does this work? It's got to be a misnomer too. Yeah. There's got to be some green women. <laughs> yes, there must be green women. And so if they're like some version of that, where they're, proto-undead or partly undead or immortal through magical means permanently watching the, the aisle, then these magics might have some overlap to them. The same magic that enables someone like Cold Hands to be around for a while could be the same magic that is sort of happening with John, a related version, given that it might come from Melisandre, who knows. But these ideas are similar enough that even if we can't get to the bottom of it, we need to keep them in mind as related ideas because that might be how it, how it falls out when we see it on page. You now, Austin Flowers said... Austin Flowers. That's a good one. Yeah. Arya's been to the Isle of Faceless <laughs> since the House of Black and White is on an island too. That's true, with those deep caves below. Nice. I like that. Good call. Good call. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Shout out to our sponsor, GiveHerGifts.com. G-I-V-HerGifts.com. Get 10% off using the code Westeros. This is very on theme today. When we're talking about things like fertility, renewal, long-lasting permanence, and cycles, that that's, describes a lot of good relationships. A lot of relationships aren't perfect, right? You have mm, not hopefully not bad times, but no relationship is perfect. So you have to have some, you know, bumps in the road. And a lot of times you come through those bumps even stronger than you were before, right? And I think with a gift, especially like on a holiday upcoming, like Valentine's Day here in the US, it is that time of year as we're recording. It's January 30th, 2022. This particular live stream is happening. And that's a good way to renew your love for somebody is to get them a meaningful guessing that you can enjoy together. And I so, think that would be a, a good way to start. Uh, Ashea, you had something to say? Yes, I was going to say that, as Aziza said, if you give someone a gift, you have to give them a gift many times a year, which can be stressful. You have Valentine's Day, you have their birthday, you have a, a, hol a holiday wintertime gift for maybe Christmas or something like that. It really adds up. So anyways, you can give them a massage. I think that it's great to do an actual activity together. 
Not yeah, rather than just, I mean, there's nothing wrong with giving no. other stuff, but things that you can do together, things that you can engage with on a personal basis, there's a, there's some argument that that might be a little better, uh, especially if you haven't done something like that in a while. So giveHerGifts.com package might be perfect for you. They, it is an experience you and your partner can do together. It's about connection. And Aaron, of course, this is the owner. I like to mention that it's a small business. You'd be helping out um, a, a startup get going. Yeah, you're helping Aaron and you're helping us. Yeah. So you're helping so, two people. Well, I guess more than that because there's we're three people. <laughs> <laughs> so check out the link in the description. That's give, G-I-V, hergifts.com, 10% off with the code Westeros. And we hope you have an excellent Valentine's Day and future holidays as well. Or Galentine's Day. Or Galentine's you give, Day. You could give your, your yeah. best friend a massage. That's true. That's true. It's not give him gifts, but we're not saying who you are. <laughs> you could be whoever. So Kiera from our Discord, shout out to Kiera, has added a lot to the discussion over there. They've been really adding a lot of great thoughts on a variety of topics, so I wanted to acknowledge that. And you can join Discord if you go to discord.com slash how Discord. Mm-hmm. Just that link. Nice and simple. The suggestion is the green men seem a lot like the closest thing to priests of the old gods, tending trees, etc. Like a bit like a druid, sort of like that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, even though we don't know exactly what they are in terms of what their job seems to be, the basic idea of their job description does seem to fit that. And that, I like that idea. We don't actually have priests of the old gods. This is, as, as they're saying, this is maybe the closest thing to that. So, yeah. That's 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 great. I appreciate that that thought. Certainly, they're keeping vigil. The idea is that they're watching over this this sacred holy space, and apparently, they've been successful for a long time. It'd be funny to like find out. No, actually, it's desolate now. It's like <laughs> there's a Starbucks. I mean, <laughs> that would explain where the cup uh, came from. Exactly. <laughs> it, it is. Wow, that's that's really good. We need to do. Okay, we need some art. We need someone to do that art, like the faces and picture of Starbucks. <laughs> Maybe treehouse style. I don't have that talent of, of artwork and, and memeing, so someone else needs to get on that. Is that where Danny came from? Yeah. That yeah, one day she had, right. she had jotted off to the Isle of Faces. She flew her dragon over there to <laughs> grab a quick coffee. She needs her morning latte. Dark, very strong coffee. She needs it. <laughs> she likes it black. I mean, if you can't ride your dragon to Starbucks, what's the point of all this? <laughs> What am I working towards? Okay, so let's talk about the real-life green men before we talk about the versions and the Song of Ice and Fire. Because, yeah, it's a real-world concept. IRL green men is the name of this section. Here's a little thing I found on the Library of Congress website. There was a play written in 1578 called Promos and Cassandra by a man named George Whetstone. And this gives an example of of green men appearing in, in places like this. I'm going to emphasize the oldness of it, just by the yeah. way. The spellings in this quote are not normal spellings that we're used to. Two disguised called green men, their habit embroidered and stitched on with ivy leaves with black side, having hanging to their shoulders a huge black shaggy hair, savage-like with ivy garlands upon their heads, bearing Herculean clubs in their hands. This is like the spellings where everything has a mysterious E on the end of it. Like black, shaggy mis- hair has an E on the but end. But there's no E in stitched, though. Yeah, stitched. black and black yeah. side has an E in black side on the black, but then huge black shaggy hair does not have the E in black. 
Yeah. It's the same we set. It's black and spelled twice. Two different words. Very yeah. inconsistent in the past. Yeah. And uh, it looks like embroidered. <laughs> yeah, embroidered. <laughs> anyway, so there's the, the point is. I think a lot of people dread their embroidering. <laughs> <laughs> They're a symbol of fertility in a huge number of ancient cultures, mostly associated with spring, the rebirth, the rebirth cycle, the renewal. They appear independently, meaning, as far as we know, the green men of, say, Borneo had nothing to do with the green men of Nepal or the green men of, of Europe, all over Europe. There's just green men that just appear. They're just in a lot of places. It's really neat. It's um, Charlie Kelly. Yeah, Charlie Kelly on It's Always Sunny is a green man. He's the modern green man. <laughs> Sean has typed embryo dread into the document <laughs> while we're, while could, we're sitting here. forget that <laughs> I didn't necessarily want to interrupt, but I could not <laughs> take note. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so you you find them on Christian churches even like as a ornament, not as wait a, embryo dread. Yeah, embryo dread. Yeah, <laughs> uh, a, a green men and their faces and and all, so just everywhere. It's a really interesting human concept that's just evolved separately in a variety of places all over the world. It can pop up anywhere. Green yeah. man. Green man. You never know. You never know. <laughs> Wild card. Oh my God. Wild what if card. that's the other face? It's just a bunch of, <laughs> just a bunch of da- they're just dancing, doing the green man they're dance. They're doing that dance. Yeah. A bunch of Philadelphia Eagle fans. Boy, there's a lot of <laughs> mashup jokes we could do with this right here. It's supposed to be serious and mystical. And here we are there, ruining it. We have your it. new costume for Ice and Fire Connoisseurs. We're going to get you and Sean both, okay? Green man costumes. Oh, and you're going to like wear horns or something. We need some Isle of- I love the idea of you having a green man costume. So for those of you who don't know what's going on here, in the show It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, is a recurring character called Green Man as well. And he's very ridiculous. It's just a full <laughs> green suit. With no eyes, no mouth, no face, it's all green. <laughs> and it's like a full body spandex spandex kind of thing. Spandex yeah, yeah. Not, like a, not like a tuxedo suit, but like a... <laughs> but Green Man has, has gotten him through some hard times. So, you know, you got to give it respect. <laughs> so, in the, so the real world Green Man from Legend, not from It's Always Sunny, are typically represented as a face with leaves, either covering it or emanating from all its orifices <laughs> or just from the mouth. That's <laughs> one of them. That's like one of the scriptures. The yeah, there's one, there's three, apparently three common types of green men. And one of them is the type that has just greenery coming out of everything, out of its ears, nose, eyes, mouth, just, just green. Just can't control the green. You can't stop the green. It's just uncontrolled growth. If you look around from green men, like real world green men, most of them look different, but some of them look like weirwood faces, a little bit like how I conceptualize, some more than others. If you saw the movie The Green Knight, it's a little like that. Yeah, which is, um, you know, an Arthurian legend. Yeah, which, of course, Arth- Arthurian stuff might predate the notion of green men, but it might not. We just don't know how far back green men go. In some cases, they probably back, go a lot farther back than others, given they've developed independently so many different places. But yeah, in, in the Green Knight movie, take away some of that fearsomeness, but the general idea of an oaky looking humanoid with scary. leaves all over and it a little scary, scary looking. Yeah. Shirt I have for the sword. Uh, yeah. That sort of a green, kind of child of the forest looking nature embedded character. I got to wear that next week, man. Our friends in the sword. Yeah, those guys are a great band and they have used a lot of like old world mysticism. I mean, they talk about the old gods, the gods of winter, gods it, of earth it, and mean, things like the that. The sword literally has songs about a song of ice and fire. They have yeah. literally have a song no. called To Take the Black. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, what do you, they have a song called Maiden, Mother and Crone, although that's not referring to a song of ice and fire directly. That's re- referring to the real world like cycle of 
life stages and fertility and goddess worship and all that. So it's really good. Highly recommend The Sword. They're a fantastic band. They're freaking awesome. Yeah. Don't underplay it. Yeah, yeah man. And, and, I love them. And friends of ours as well. What's up, guys? So as well, the depictions of the green men, here's where we kind of find a, a point to pivot back to a song of ice and fire directly, which is that a lot of depictions of green men have them having branches uh, growing out of their head like horns, which is pretty similar to how the green men of a song of ice and fire described because they have like antlers. So you've got this fertility stuff, stags, you know, horn, antlers are a symbol of fertility. The bigger the antlers, the more fertile, right? So branches, antlers, it's a pretty similar concept. So let's move on and have a quote. Before this quote, yeah. I really I need you to commit. If I found you a green man costume <laughs> and horned <laughs> headdress, would you wear that at Ice and Fire Con? Look, if, if, if you ask me this, when it wasn't a live stream, I might be like, I don't know, but you put I'm me on the spot. I'm putting you on the spot. Oh, yeah, well, I was pretty smart of a What about you, Sean? She chose the right moment. Would you do it? Especially Would you wear on a spandex? cold day, it might be nice to have an extra layer of uh, yeah. green spandex on. <laughs> so I'm going to look into this. I, I really am. I'm greater than 50%. Okay, I'll okay. Okay. Whether the green men still survive on the aisle is not clear, although there is the occasional account of some foolhardy young river lord taking a boat to the aisle and catching sight of them before winds rise up or a flock of raisins dry, ravens <laughs> flock of raisins away. <laughs> watch out <laughs> the nursery tales claiming that they are horned and have dark green skin is a corruption of the likely truth which is that the green men wore green garments and horn headdresses. Oh, says you, E-N-L. Really? Green men? You don't know. He's just... <laughs> cr- well, I mean, the likely truth probably is that they're just people wearing costumes. In the real world, that would be the likely truth, but not here. This is where, I mean, the likely truth isn't so likely. It's just a possibility that they're just wearing costumes. But even that is, again, if they're just wearing costumes and if they're supposedly still there, well where are these people coming from? Again, do they have some sort of local population that keeps renewing itself? Do they kidnap children from the, from the mainland to raise them on the aisle? Or yeah, I, I don't know that, that that works either. So there's logistical issues yeah, like, uh, that almost the, require magic to solve. Yeah, are there women? How are they having kids? Maybe there aren't green women. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's the deal there? I, I totally, totally agree. There has to Maybe be Maybe Lady something. Stoneheart's going to start bringing them babies. <laughs> 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 hey, they, it, it, we do know that Lady Stoneheart is searching for young children. The presumption is that she's searching for Arya, and that makes sense. But hey, maybe no, maybe she just wants. This is not Arya. Bring it to the aisle. <laughs> <laughs> another one for the aisle. Send another boatload of kids to the aisle. Very important to remember. This is a really important reminder. As we consider the possibility that the green men or some sort of like have the blood of the children of the forest in them, that is some sort of hybrid or some sort of magical thing that combines them. The children of the forest aren't green. I know it's really easy to make that mistake because the TV show made them green. So if you're thinking of that, you got to take that away as a possible connection point here because it's not. The children of the forest, remember, they're described as like the, the they, they look like deer in terms of their like, little layer of fur. So that's not green at all, is it? There's no green deer that I know of. <laughs> They're dappled, it says, like brown and light light tans and things like that. So no green, no, no. Only occasionally in the eyes when one of them's a green seer, apparently. So expunge that notion. So the basic options, I guess, are the green men are human. The green men are supernatural human. 
And that supernatural human is a very broad range of possibilities, or they're just something else entirely. And I don't know, which is also an extremely <laughs> wide range of possibilities. If they were created at the pack, that somewhat implies uh, a supernatural element, right, Sean? Don't you think? Because otherwise, you're just like, they celebrated the pact and just put on green clothing and antlers. Like, what's that all about? <laughs> I mean, they might even wear green face paints of some sort. Yeah, you know what I mean? that's true. You can imagine, especially for like a celebratory moments or hunting parties or something, which may- maybe would be like, the more likely moments for them to be witnessed by others. I'd so. be like people who eat too many carrots and they turn kind of orange, you know? <laughs> they just like eat a certain kind of food and it turns them. Eat too much. It's all that weirwood paste. <laughs> Don't let Popeye like, hear you say you know, that. Paste galore <laughs> and it just turns them colored. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is the idea of, you know, there being some sort of um, transformative element that isn't them being created a new race, but that is them. I mean, green seers become one with the tree. There's clearly is this, this transforming. Yeah. So we just have to kind of, we're trying to imagine the different ways it could come out or maybe which ones are more likely or just trying to use as much of our imagination as possible here. So yeah, we last time or perhaps the time before we suggested similar magics were perhaps in play if it's some sort of hybrid human children thing and they can't breed. But the possibility is that they can breed. It is suggested. In one of the anecdotes from the Stormlands, which we'll get to eventually, there is supposedly a first, a king of the first men who had a, took a child of the forest to wife. So the idea pops up in legends that humans and children might be able to have their own children between them. Or maybe even both these things are possible. Maybe that can happen. And there's this magical hybridization thing that is similar-ish to how the Valyrians got so close to dragons. But here's another possibility, or at least another data point to throw in, which is relating the green men to other similar beings. And one of them would be Garth Greenhand. Check out this quote. Some stories say he had green hands, green hair, or green skin overall. A few even give him antlers like a stag. Right. Others tell us that he dressed in green from head to foot. And certainly this is how he is most commonly depicted in paintings, tapestries, and sculptures. It's like the same description, right? It's got like the same caveat. Like, oh, it's probably just uh, gre- dressed in green. But green skin, green hair, green antlers. Hmm. Like it's, this, it's pretty much almost identical, right, Sean? Yeah, it's very similar. And I think it's, I, I don't want to, my inclination is to downplay the fantastic, you know? Yeah. So I think it's more likely that the green men just dress in green, wear green, maybe paint their faces green, maybe wear antlerish headdresses or whatever. And all this can be exaggerated or misinterpreted or makes for a more interesting story. And, and, and same thing with Garth Greenhands, probably was just a person and played up the connection to nature and the stories and imagery are going to become more fantastic over time. But there is even, I I also, we know this role does have mystical, fantastic elements. So there, maybe it's that plus an added in connection with the trees. And the thing is, I was going to say they might've had a sort of isolated evolution on this aisle, Mm -hmm. but it's still evolution can only do so much in that short a period of time. But it could, I mean, it wouldn't be like if you have a Caucasian and a black African have a child, that's a miss one generation of a very different physical look, right? It doesn't take thousands of years for that to happen. Yeah. And there are in the real world albinos or, you know, maybe some people have red hair or whatever. So what if at the pact, they did select people, what if there was like 
some genetic mutation where someone had greenish skin or greenish hair. Yeah. Maybe it was even common among some group of the first men. And they picked seven of them out. Yeah. And they bred together over centuries and centuries. Now they all have green hair. You know, that seems maybe a little far-fetched, but so are a lot of the other possibilities. Hey, Lannisters so have maintained green eyes for eons. So, I mean, yeah, like it, it is a little far-fetched, but it's not completely out of, like you said, it's it's grounded in some things that we've seen elsewhere. Yeah, Valerians have hear, purple eyes. You hear about, and, you know, the idea of if humans mating with the Ibanese and stuff like that, yeah. and whether that's possible from male to female, female to male and all that. And so... Like with Garth, Sean, you're right to be a little suspicious, I think, even more so than the Green Men, because with the Green Men, it's like this ancient tale that isn't necessarily repeated for political value. No one's propping themselves up with the politics of the Green Men or the Isle of Faces. But Garth Greenhand, on the other hand, oh no, that's the that's the opposite. Because all these Reach families are like, we descend from Garth Greenhand. So the more powerful and magical he seems, the better it makes them look. So there's a, there's a strong reason to doubt this stuff about Garth. It might be where they got this. He might be like, let's make him sound like one of the green men. That might have even been the idea. You know, like, let's let's attach him. Let's associate him with this ancient magical event that happened long ago. And that gives him this additional authority over people, over his descendants and all the people that come, came after. Gives him a way to put themselves above like regular folk who aren't related to him. So it also kind of, well, we'll talk more about him later, but you know, when we get to the reach as a section, he becomes even more prominent. But the idea of renewal and fertility and spreading agriculture, which is a big part of what he's associated with and, and allowing human societies to prosper using this new knowledge and perhaps magic along with it to, to boost that new knowledge, to boost their ability to produce food and, and all that. That really speaks to what's going to be needed at the end of the story, which is what we're kind of working up to with Bran, as we've, we've referred to him as Bran the Rebuilder. And if Westeros has been ravaged by civil war, winter, dragon fire, grayscale, you name it, you're going to need some renewal. You're going to need to grow some new plants, grow plant, do planting and growing and tending and all that. That's, what, that's what's going to be called for after all this destruction, right? So you can really see. So again, the bookending of these eras really would fit quite well. You got an ancient pact and a return to nature. Maybe that's where things are kind of headed for this story. Sort of a hybrid version of that. You got, you got your respect for nature, but you got your new version of politics to help Westeros and the humans all get along again, or at least make an attempt at that. Joe Magician brought up the idea that wearing horns or being depicted with antlers is often the opposite of fertility. It's a sign of being cuckolded. So for, he, gives oh, the, yeah. he gives the Wearing example horns. of like Robert is a horned lord, not only because he's had a lot of children, but because he's been cuckolded. That's he's been true. wearing the horns. Both, he says yeah. the trick of wearing the horns is that the guy wearing them doesn't know he's been cuckolded. It's mocking someone unaware, yet they think it's a great honor. And so then Terra Incognita, Incognita said, gave him horns, i.e. people who think they're descendants of Garth actually aren't. Or the uh, idea that mm -hmm. the Reach is not actually every Reach house isn't really descent, descended from him. And then I like the idea mm. that Joe Magician goes on and says the idea that some of the stories are Garth having sex with men's barren wives, daughters. You know, wow. the idea is calling someone a child of Garth might have really been calling them a bastard. The meaning Interesting. Lost. Yeah, because that's that's fascinating. Yeah, that really makes a lot of sense. That fits in so well. What a great comment. The the notion of, yeah, because the cuckold that comes from the bird that sneaks its eggs into someone, into a different bird's nest and tricks them into raising 
like doing all the parenting for them, right? Isn't that where that comes from? I think the cuckoo does oh, yeah. that, I think. So it's a cuckold. I think that's where that comes from, that term. <laughs> so yeah, you, I trick someone else into raising your kids for you. Mm, wow, great. Yeah, great, great comment. Um, mm. Anything to add to that, Sean? Not nothing in particular. Yeah, it was all very uh, thought-provoking. Yeah, interesting. Like yeah, yeah, I goes, looks like Brandon's wife was visited by guards. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. So basically, the green man is just an aisle of people who cuckold you. Yeah, if you're That's if your it. kids if your kids have horns, then you know. <laughs> okay, so here's another quote, uh, just a short one, and it's from Brand. The green men ride on elks. Old man used to say. Sometimes they have antlers too. Antlers too. Yes, interesting. So again, we get to this horns antlers thing. Cold hands. Remember, I just mentioned him a minute ago. He rides an elk. Yeah. Eh? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not green, but <laughs> so that's why I wonder if we're theorizing about this possibility, if we have green men that have maybe lived for some absurdly long amount of time, whatever magic preserved cold hands could be preserving those beings, whatever they are, allowing them to exist and do their work, um, live out their lives in service to the old gods, something like that. It certainly fits. Obviously, it doesn't have a lot of weight behind it as a theory, but there's some connection there, maybe. Certainly similar magic is in play. Obviously, Cold Hands was animated by the magic of the children. And it's an example of uh, resurrection that's not raising the dead. Cold Hands is not just an animated corpse. He has a personality, right? Maybe not a, maybe not a very robust personality, but he isn't uh, not just a mindless automaton going brains. You know, not that the whites do that either, but... <laughs> <laughs> so who has actually seen the green man? That we know of. I saw them. You saw I, them? Sean saw them? Yeah. I'm not supposed to say anything, but <laughs> cats out of the back. <laughs> well, I have a lot of questions for you then. Let's, I'm going to delete the entire rest of this episode and just focus <laughs> on this. Now, so Nina points out the only modern figure, meaning within the last few hundred years, outside of A Song of Ice and Fire, the main series, is Adam Valerian, who we mentioned at the beginning. He supposedly went there on Sea Smoke, the dragon according to the singers, it's it's doubtful that he would do this. For one thing, why? What he was doing was going around trying to make get an army together to, one, to fight for his side. He was a loyalist. And to, two, to prove that he was loyal because his family was, there was doubt was cast on his family because Rhaenyra became suspicious of anyone with bastard birth. And Laenor, or Adam rather, his, uh, his parentage was doubtful. So... But his loyalty proved quite not in doubt. And so it's weird that he would go around to different Riverlands houses and get an army together as quick as possible. But why would he need to stop at the Isle of Faces? What's his purpose? Who knows? It's kind of an odd point. The reason I think it might be there, the reason I think George wrote it, is to just raise the notion that a dragon rider could go there. Just to put that idea in our head that that such a thing is possible. Like, hey, you don't need a boat necessarily if you have a dragon. And it's always the boats that are kept away, but there's no strong wind blowing back dragons that we've ever heard of. So, yeah, could be Euron torching the whole thing. Maybe that's that's a way that's a way for George to avoid ever showing it to us. Just have Euron burn the whole thing. It's like, yeah, <laughs> it's gir- it's it's just flaming now. There's nothing left. Whatever was there, it's all torched. So maybe the most interesting part of this whole episode we've been saving here for the end, which is the our delving into Howland Reed and the Night of the Laughing Tree. This is a more certain, though not 100%, tale of someone who actually went there. And let's do our best to figure out why, or at least to raise some good questions 
and see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. Howlin' Reed and the Knight of the Laughing Tree. Whoops. The lad knew the magics of the Kranichs, she continued, but he wanted more. Our people seldom travel far from home, you know. We're a small folk, and our ways seem queer to some, so the big people do not always treat us kindly. But this lad was bolder than most, and one day, when he had grown to manhood, he decided he would leave the Kranigs and visit the Isle of Faces. No one visits the Isle of Faces, objected Bran. That's where the green men live. It was the green men he meant to find. Mm. With today's topics in mind, this patch takes on new light. The magic of the Kranigs is by itself is an intriguing concept, but we'll save that for when we discuss the neck and the Kranig men as a whole. They certainly relate to a lot of this. But right now, we're just interested in the reeds, especially Howland. Uh, Nina says, Mira suggests in her story of the Night of the Laughing Tree that Howland Reed specifically set out for Harrenhal because he wanted to find the green men. Why? What was his purpose doing that? He just wanted to learn more magic. He's like, well, I've learned some magic. I want more. I mean, that's a reasonable thing. Like, magic is cool. Who wouldn't want more magic if you if it's making your life better, making you cool? <laughs> Get some more, right? You don't really need a lot of explanation for that. She says, and he did successfully do so and then stay there for a, a decent long time, like into the year of the fall spring. He was there for maybe some months because he went there before the tournament, right? He didn't, the tournament is something that started up, you know, like after this. So this seems a lot more likely than the Adam Valerian story, but it also seems likely that it happened. Like why would Howland, I mean, we don't know the guy. But it seems weird that he would make all this up, right? Why would he lie to his kids? What's the point of lying to Mira and Jojen about having gone there? And especially because they bring up the point, are you sure your father never told you about this? They seem legitimately surprised that Ned Stark never told Bran any of this stuff. That comes up multiple times in their storytelling, like, your father never told you this, huh? He's like, no. Which implies he didn't necessarily tell any of his other kids either. I mean, maybe he was waiting for Bran to get older to tell him that, but there's really no indication that Sansa or Jon or Catelyn or any of them have any of, any of this information. I mean, obviously he's not going to talk Tower of Joy. We know he promised apparently not to, but we're not even just talking about that. We're just talking about Howlin' Reed and Isle of Faces and, and other stuff that happened at the turn in the Heron Hall that came shortly after. So, yeah. I can imagine Ned not wanting to bring any of it up. It all yeah, starts down the road of conversation. It could lead where he doesn't want it to. Yeah, and and not being like an intriguy guy, he's maybe not super clear on what would clue people into more. So he's just like, no, nah, I'm just not going to say anything. Like, loose. Yeah, never mind the sort of like internal struggle about his honesty with his wife or whatever. You yeah, know? like it, it's he just wants his to guilt. avoid the yeah. whole topic. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And and in fact, that's a great point too because it, when he comes up, when he has the Tower of Joy dream. It's like, it's, it's, it's written in a way that George suggests he hasn't thought about this in a while. He's managed to shut it out, which is part of, which is kind of important because it's the one way for <laughs> us to believe that, to, to find it realistic that Ned hasn't thought about this stuff in his own POVs. <laughs> it's like, ah, because he's, he's locked it out. It's, he's shut it down, shut those thoughts down. And to be fair, I think that is believable too. Yeah, you know, I, yeah. like, like, never mind, I don't know, traumatic or, I don't know, shameful things from my past 20 years ago. Even, like, cool, fun, positive things. I don't remember or dwell on them, you know, yeah, from you know, yeah. 20 uh, Even things that maybe were, like, I don't know, 
when a pride or accomplishment, I still don't actively think about them very often at all, you know, so. Hmm. You're telling me uh, you don't sometimes sit there and just think about something embarrassing that happened? (laughs) I'm not saying never, but it's not something I typically dwell on. And again, even positive things. Like I was promoted a sergeant in the 82nd Airborne Division, but I don't, when's the last time I thought about that? Today. I don't know, you know. Just like now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about this too. This, the why of why Hal and Reed, Reed went there. We don't know exactly, maybe just to get more magic, like he said. And if he, but it, but it is telling that he would associate the magic of the Kranigs with the same magic that he could get from the Green Man or something that would expand his knowledge. Again, I use my example of, well, you wouldn't go to, a, an ice mage to learn how to cause sandstorms. You go to a desert mage for that. You go to a fire mage to learn fire magic, right? So if... if I want to go to the cookie mage. <laughs> yeah, or the coffee <laughs> mage. Yeah, let's go there. <laughs> and so, that, so if he's going to the green men, he clearly there's an association here that... And it makes sense, right? That that kind of goes without... That kind of doesn't need further explanation. The, the thematic connection, anyway, the similarities seem kind of straightforward. But it's worth mentioning in general, pointing that connection out. And this might be how he got on this track of knowing that when his son had these green dreams of the crow pecking at its chains, the three-eyed crow and all that, and the winter wolf, that he knew what to do. He knew to send his son to Bran. And it's the only thing I can think of as to how he knew to do that was things he learned on the Isle of Faces or things that were coming to him in visions that maybe that's why he wanted to go to the Isle of Faces. He was having visions and he wanted some answers. Like, what the heck does this mean? Why am I having visions of this? Uh, this is the one place he could think of that would maybe have answers for him. You reminded me a little bit of the the Seven Times Killer Man. Yeah. But also maybe in general, sometimes, especially with mystical, fantastic stories that involve destiny or whatever, sometimes the character is just compelled to do something and they don't necessarily mm, know why. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's maybe just like a mission planted into them as a kid. Like, Danny, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to sit the Iron Throne. So she's just pushing toward that, even though she barely knows why. You know, yeah. sometimes it might be some moral belief you come to have, like John wanting the Wildlands to be treated like all the other you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. But the uh, Jane She. Mm-hmm. Remember that? I forget the character. What is the central character's name? Eric. Uh, something. Yeah, Eric. Um, yeah, Eric. Eric. You know, he, Yeah, Eric the Crawl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he 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 realized at some point he seemed to be just. He didn't understand quite why he was collecting these statues. Yeah, that sense? yeah. Like <laughs> it doesn't quite make sense for him to be doing it. At one point, he realized how how little they were asking him questions and how little answers they had for questions he asked him. But he started to realize that the reverse is true. He started to realize how ignorant he seemed to be for the questions they did have for him. And I wonder if it was because of the power of the pyramids was just Mm. compelling them to do things. And when they stop to think about it, they don't have a good answer. On some level, there might be a little bit more of an explanation of the visions that Helen Reed or other characters are having. But even though they might not be able to understand or explain it, I can still see how they might be compelled to... Mm burn the dragon eggs down or start the pyre with Khal Drogo and Mary Mazdor. You know, I can just yeah, see these yeah. sort of like mystical Certainly, things yeah. characters feel like they have to do. Danny's a they great example. Why. Yeah, because she's... Sure enough, she it works, you know? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you're unlocking the power of the pyramid, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Saber really put a lot of work into that. So. And, and we... <laughs> 
And we have some other examples here. Like if we go back to Bran's example, Bran had this, you know, had these dreams and he's drawn north. This is more supernatural. This might be very similar. So Bran is drawn to to go beyond the wall to meet with Three-Eyed Raven. Three-Eyed Crow turns out to be Blood Raven. And what if that's similar here? We've also, we've theorized, the fandom has theorized that Euron was a failed green seer. They reached out to him and were like, wait, not him. Maybe Hal and Reed was the same. They reached out to him and sussed it out and called him to the aisle. And maybe he wasn't the one, but he had enough going on that they had to check. Something like that. But it could be a similar sort of calling from the old gods, like a green seer called Bran to come to him. What if the green, a green seer on the Isle of Faces called Hal and Reed, right? Hmm. Something like that. A very compelling mystery and one that we can perhaps expect quite a bit more explanation on. Unlike some of the other things we might not have got explanation on. This is definitely going to at least have some more clarity. Full clarity? Probably not. But I mean, the Rhaegar Lyanna Turnahall. Wow, I threw it all that together. So remember how some of this goes. Let's refresh ourselves a little bit on that. Hallen goes and he's beat up by the squires, right? And... Liana shows up and is like, and rescues him, right? So that's part of how they become friends. And this is why we know there's a connection between them, why we know that maybe he would be privy to certain things, certain secrets between either her and Rhaegar, her and Ned, or all the above. And, well, let's continue, actually, with the story. We've got quotes from Bran and Mira. It took him many a day, but finally he reached the god's eye, threw his boat in the lake, and paddled out to the Isle of Faces. Did he meet the green men? Yes, said Mira. But that's another story, and not for me to tell. My prince asked for knights. Green men are good, too. That's <laughs> so Bran, right? Green men are good, that's too. That's one of my favorite lines. Yeah, yeah. green men are good, too. Yeah, it's, it's very, <laughs> that's a good too. Yeah. Bran and story time. Which child is line. So meta, this whole thing is story time. <laughs> we are also being told the story. And literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah. <laughs> You're good, too, Bran, yeah. <laughs> and it also shows a little bit of growth in his part, too. Like, he's a little naive, maybe, that he, like, is excited about the stories of knights, but he realizes like, oh, there's other things that are also interesting and exciting. You know, not just knights. Green men are good too. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, so he's, he's basically been, yeah, this is a pretty good story actually. Like, I like these tales. Yeah, go ahead and go ahead and keep that going. I mean, knights are the best, but green men are good too. And then that's why the story pivots to the tournament because that's kind of the story about knights. But also, she says, that's another story not for me to tell. Like, you... You should, though. <laughs> Why isn't it for you to tell? Dang it. <laughs> we get that every once in a while. This is that same thing, that same line that George uses in a certain ways. Of course, it's applied to the green men in the Isle of Faces. Of course. But the bottom line, he did meet them. That's a, he, she's just an emphatic yes. <laughs> did he meet the green men? Yes. So, yes. <laughs> oh boy, we are... This, that's, that's why I have a little additional confidence that we're going to get better answers here than we might get with some of these other mysteries. We're at least going to know what the heck they are, at least a better idea than maybe they're human, maybe they're wearing antler helmets. I don't know. I think at least that much will get cleared up. <laughs> and But it does conflict with what we've been told about a lot of the standard people try to go to the Isle of Faces and something prevents them. He didn't have that problem. Whatever, he was accepted or... 
maybe the maesters just don't or know what overcame about. the problem. Yeah. Like he may have had something, something deter him, but he made it through. Yeah. Or if he was summoned, if the calling was a real calling and not just something he felt he needed to do, but they actually summoned him. Well, you would yeah, think he wasn't a random intruder. He yeah. was, yeah, invited. Yeah, um, he had the correct holy bearing. He was pe- properly penitent. <laughs> Only the penitent men may pass, and you're penitent. So let's talk about the concept of Bran the Rebuilder. While a lot of these stories, I said at the beginning, I noted the possibility that Bran's story, as deep as he is in the North, it seems like his end game is in the South, perhaps in this vicinity, the, the God's eye itself. If not on the Isle of Faces, if he doesn't end his days on the Isle of Faces itself, maybe nearby, maybe he takes over Harrenhal, something wild like that. But the thematic resonance here is really powerful. Again, after everything, after all the destruction, it's going to be what Westeros needs. Someone equipped to lead the realm to the dream of spring. His wolf is called Summer. He's a dreamer. He's a symbol of spring. He's got the powers of the old gods. He's got the stark power. He's a good kid, right? He's also got a positive disposition. He sees things in a positive light. It may seem awkward to think of Bran as king, but... God King leading the renewal effort. He's got the he's got the attributes. He's got the resume apart from his age. <laughs> he's a little young. <laughs> How does this strike you, Sean, especially in light of what we saw in the show? Um, well, maybe not especially, but throwing that into the mix because we don't need to delve into the show too much. But considering what we learned there, which might or might not be accurate, it really does fit kind of well. And throw in one other idea while we're at it. What about Bran? If you have a god-king ruler, what if he's just like sending dreams out to his subjects? What if that's how he wins the great council? He just sets false dreams into all the voters' minds like, I'm going to vote for that guy. And they're all like, yeah, or you know, dream I'm do that too. Into all the voters' minds. Yeah, maybe he sends them real visions of the future. Look, if you don't vote for me, look at this. We're all going to end in blood and fire and ice. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm just thinking about the idea it makes a difference if you win an election of whatever sort by 51% or 99%. Yeah, so you're sense. right. So, the mandate. And, yeah. And if you could let people know that you were going to win through a vision, so you truly were going to win, you might up the number of people who vote for you. Yes. Like someone's on the fence, so they, well, let me go, I guess I'll vote for him so I know he's winning anyway. I, I don't know if he'll do that. I don't even know how, how this will pan out, but it, it, it does make a lot of sense but I still can't help but be sort of suspicious of how it will physically happen. I, I just don't know. Yeah, it's you got a whole. Uh, there's so I mean, it, it like <laughs> it, it makes sense. And you could see, uh, like, if Bran ends up being king, you could see the clues that lead down that path. But if Bran ends up being absorbed into a tree and some kind of weird prophetic creature tied to the north, you could also see yeah. the paths that lead to that. You could see him and, ruling uh, from behind the scenes, like he's actually in charge, but isn't yes, sitting on the yeah. throne, like he's controlling someone else. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. It could take different forms. That's why we can't take the show too closely, just kind of get the gist and, and, and try to incorporate that into our theorizing, not not as like hard and fast rule. Like not a little more than a homeopathic amount <laughs> of show. <laughs> Any excuse to stick homeopathic in now. Yeah, it's, it's just too funny <laughs> using that joke. There's a lot of versions this could take and George maybe hasn't fully decided on some of these. Like he may have envisioned this end game. Some of the how to get there is what he's still working out and the way to write it because of course the presentation is is almost everything. And 
Mm, I, I really, it's so powerful. Like the idea that on one hand, Bloodraven went into his dreams, right? That, maybe that was because he was in a coma. Maybe that's because of his bloodline. But Bran's more powerful and perhaps way more powerful. He's just getting started, right? Like Bran's just drank that Weirwood beverage that might be Jojen paste in his most recent chapter. And that immediately gave him these like insane visions. So that's just scratching the surface. And he was already doing things that he maybe shouldn't be able to do, like going into Hodor and, and speaking to people in the past. Like he's already breaking rules with his first like foray into this realm. So it, it kind of implies that he's maybe we might even be selling him short on just how powerful he's going to turn out to be. And if that's the case, then yeah, putting himself into other people's heads, giving them suggestions. It almost seems like child's play um, <laughs> by comparison. <laughs> It is worth pointing out, by the way, that I suppose this isn't really common in, I don't know, fantasy literature, but in, in reality, every child president doesn't become uh, uh, the president. Uh, every child prodigy doesn't become president of the United States or yeah, win a Nobel Prize. I guess Prize none of them do. Well, Nobel and, Prize, yes, but not president. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and every Nobel Prize winner or president or whatever didn't start off as a child prodigy either. Right. So right. There, it's easy for someone to cap out to, 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 for whatever reason, whether they burn out or get taken down or, or, or have a different passion or. Uh, Brand. In, in this it, world, the killed Brand's or. Brand's going to kill a bard. Else. He's the discover bar, that, right? he, that he yeah. loves playing the loot, you know, that's it. He's yeah. just talking about, his, you never know, he'll pivot. Now that's random. He might become a gardener. Or a, <laughs> yeah, a gardener. <laughs> He's going to start a construction anyway, company. Now that would be more fitting. <laughs> Brand construction. It is a very, you know, the, the chosen one trope, if you will, is very common in, in literature. And it seems like Brand is on some sort of path. In that He's like the chosen but, one of several, because there's Danny's kind of a chosen mm, one and some yeah. other. But, but, but again, you, you know, George, subverts tropes, right? So there isn't just one chosen one. And so he's already sort of subverted that, but the chosen one doesn't necessarily have to get there or be the one in the end either. So I, I try to keep that in mind. It To me, it maybe even makes more sense, if you will, in the context of how George writes for Brand to not have exactly a happy ending, if you will. You know? Right on. Well said. Good point. Good said. Yeah, so there's a lot to think about with Brand there. I really, I'm really happy we could lay it out there for y'all. We encourage you to send your thoughts if you have, if this stokes new thoughts in your imagination, if this gives you new ideas, if this uh, sends you to new places thinking about the end game. Because I think that is, I'm very adamant about that. I feel very confident in that, that all this stuff is being held off because it's end game stuff. End game of thrones. <laughs> I like that phrase. We have a lot of this here. I mean, we, well, we're, we're all very focused on the winds of winter because that's what's next. But this stuff, I think, comes after that. Um, Green King of the God's Eye. That could be Bran, my friends. I want to tie this in again to the seven times never kill a man. At, at the end of that story, who, who won? Who was the good guy? <laughs> yeah. It, it was kind of tragic. Yeah. You know, like it's hard to know. Uh, especially in retrospect, like, what did you think you were rooting for? I, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, so. it's kind of like, yeah, there is no, yeah, it doesn't have a happy ending. I wonder if that'll be, I don't suppose that Song of Ice and Fire is going to have a happy ending either, but it won't be. Given the the large amount of characters and, and regions and everything, some of them will probably be somewhat happy, you know, but overall, it's oh, probably going to be one other, At least according one to One other George. little detail there. Sure. What, 
What color are the children of the forest eyes? Golden. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and if you notice, the, this was a, a subtle detail in And Seven Times Never Kill Man. I always did that too, Sean, by the way. It says never kill a man. It's just kill man, no, not a man. Oh, okay. <laughs> and oh, I'm, yeah, I, I was, I'm, I'll never forget that because I said it wrong to George's face and he corrected me. <laughs> so I was like... <laughs> when did you say that? That'll help you face? remember. <laughs> One of the signings. Oh, I yeah. don't remember. You bring, well, why, when did you, you got your thing signed and then walked away and I was behind you. Oh. So, and I said, I just read it and he corrected me on the title. He said he just read it too. Yeah, he just read it and he's already, he gets the title wrong. What a <laughs> but man, I tell you what, just like the Proctor in that story, if any character in Song of Ice and Fire ever has mention of a gold speckle in their eyes, mm. we're going to be like, <gasps> yeah. Is that it? Yeah. You see that? There it is. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, his eyes start to turn golden at the end. That was, that's such a yeah awesome detail. Yeah, like, wait, his eyes are changing. That is super awesome, yeah. Uh, comment from Guinevere Greenstones. How's it going, my friend? We appreciate your comments today. She says, could Damon Targaryen have washed up on the Isle of Faces? The body was never found. Yeah, actually, kind of meant to mention that. Supposedly, when uh, Damon Targaryen, we mentioned Vagar's death, but not uh, not this part. So when Damon and Aemon had their duel above the god's eye, the dragon duel above the god's eye, which might be foreshadowing a similar event in A Song of Ice and Fire. He plunged into the, into the lake, probably died, but there's the singers say he washed up on the Isle of Faces and still lives there now, which I don't see a point to that, right? What would be the purpose of like, hey, there's Damon. He's still alive on the Isle of Faces. How about that? But, I mean, as uh, Lord Varus, our friend Kalgamoth from Westeros.org pointed out, it would have been pretty crazy for, you know, prior to A Dance with Dragons to theorize that Bloodraven was still alive. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that's not an argument for this to be true. It's just an argument that the craziness of it isn't a great counterpoint. <laughs> so it's neither, it's, it's like a neutralizing point. It's like, yeah, this isn't very strong evidence, but you can't just throw it aside. Although it is really kind of hard to perceive what the narrative purpose of his, his him being around would be. So... I don't know, but it's definitely out there. It's a possibility that he could have survived. His body was never found, and they did find all the other stuff. They found Dark Sister. They found Aemon's body is still chained to Vagar. They found those bones. So, yeah. On the other hand, Aemon was chained to his saddle, <laughs> whereas Damon jumped off his dragon. So <laughs> it does make sense that his body would be lost more so. Anyway... One other funny point here, one other little antler reference, one other, uh, maybe this relates to the the bit that Joe Magician brought up too about the cuckolding. putting cuckolding yeah. people. The antler men <laughs> of, of the Clash of Kings, the ones who were trying to betray the Baratheons, the, the Lannister Baratheons in favor of Stannis. They were basically planning, plotting to open a door to let Stannis' men in during the attack on King's Landing. But Tyrion and Varys, well, Varys sussed that out. And because he, and he, that tells you a lot, right? Varys, if Varys had wanted Stannis to win, he would have just not revealed this plot. Varys did not want Stannis to win. And so he told them, and Joffrey, of course, being Joffrey, had these conspirators had antlers nailed to their heads and then they were flung from the walls via catapult. There's definitely some symbolism in there if you're looking for it, like rejecting the green men, rejecting this, but it's mostly just Joffrey bring Joffrey. 
<laughs> even uh, even some of the parallels or symbols we brought up today, but Joffrey like uh, rejecting the Baratheon side yes. of put into the ostensible Baratheon side of him. Yeah, and his father had horns nailed because he's not really his father's son. <laughs> yeah, so he's he is the the offspring of that cuckolding or what have you of, of the horns being put on Robert's head. And, um, but it's funny because the horns are actually put on, in another way, you could say the horns were placed on Tommen and Joffrey and <laughs> Marcella's heads because they're not really stags. They're, they're lions. So you're kind of dressing them up as stags. So it's kind of like putting antlers yeah. on their head too, but in a different, yeah. without the euphemistic meaning. So this is sort of the, I guess you could see on the deep symbolism, the sort of the opposite of the green men, the antler men are being kicked out of the island, um, kicked off of the, the place rather than keeping everyone else from joining. Perhaps because this is what happens. If you let them in, this is what happens. If you let humankind worship your gods, they, they ruin everything. People ruin everything. I mean, Joffrey is a perfect example. Like, they, they made him king? These humans are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> like, what better proof do you need that humans are fools? And, you know, this they got a 14-year-old psychopath in charge. Like, they couldn't come up with a better system than that. <laughs> That's what happens. If you move away from stone tools, it leads to Joffrey becoming king. <laughs> Step one, Step three, Joffrey. <laughs> <laughs> Step two, Robert wasn't that much better. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. So let us say goodbye for today. Let us begin our outro process here. You can get bonus episodes of History of Westeros by going to patreon.com slash historyofwesteros or just by going to our website, historyofwesteros.com and sending a donation. We will send you links. I have been lacking in a full description of what the bonus episodes are. So let me do a little better job of that today and sell our bonus content a little better by actually telling you what's all there. Scripted chapter breakdowns of the A Feast for Crows prologue and the Norse Remembers stuff, stuff that we didn't talk about during Valar Reredos. These are separate. These were made before that. We have a couple episodes on where are they now. These are short episodes, kind of keeping up with where some of the characters ended up. By the time the Winds of Winter rolls around, some of y'all may have forgotten where some of these characters are in the current part of the story. So we have where are they now for Team Stannis, where are they now for Tourney of the Hand, all these different characters that appeared during the tournament. There's a lot of characters coming together there. Where are they now, Tyrion in the Vale, a lot of characters that appeared there, like at at, uh, the Eyrie and elsewhere. We have Valar Reredos by POV on our Patreon feed. You can, in other words, listen to just the Arya chapters without having to skip around, or just the John chapters, rather than going through it the normal order, the normal chapter-by-chapter order. We have a bonus episode on Gagasos, the city of blood magic, which would have been the 10th free city before the Red Death wiped it out, and it was a place of incredible magic and Valyrian technology. We have a bonus episode on the Red Kraken, Dalton Greyjoy, scripted as well, just like Gagasos and some of those others that we did with our friends over at Radio Westeros. And our podcast feed is getting too big. We There are episodes that people just don't seem to notice because it's they're so far back or in the middle. So we're going to start moving. Some of our older episodes are going to get moved off the main feed and move on to Patreon only. So they're never going to get taken off the Patreon feed but they will be taken off the main feed so that newcomers don't get overwhelmed. So this be a good. This is a warning to you all. If you're not a patron, grab those episodes now. Just download them, then you won't be left without them later. 
or just sign up for Patreon and you'll never lose uh, access to those at any point. And uh, it's pretty affordable, as low as $2 a month. On top of that, by listening on the Patreon feed, you dodge most, not all, of our outside advertisements. The recurring, the episode sponsorships stay the same, but the inserted ads by bigger sponsors, those are not part of the Patreon feed, so you also sort of pay to, it's kind of like a lot of subscription services where you pay to get rid of the ads, so though you're paying to get rid of most of the ads in our case. We aren't some big company that can just turn off all the ads. We don't have the technology for that, but we can turn off some of them, so that's how that works. So I hope you all uh, find that to be of value. We would very much appreciate uh, you signing up to become a member. And we are I'm a little late on rearranging some of our patron benefits, but I'm, I'm pondering how to make some changes to that. It, some of those benefits are years and years old and it's time for an update, but kind of hemming and hawing on what exactly to do with that. Anyway, that's for, for us to worry about. You can certainly send feedback if you have ideas, but it's not your problem. <laughs> yes, Sean. By the way, I brought up my shirt earlier. Aziz, you're wearing a Stark Reminders shirt there. I am. It yeah. says, we do not shave. House beard. House beard. Yeah, and shout out Stark Reminders. Friends of Stark ours. Stark Reminders. If you look them up on um, Etsy and you can find a lot of cool, a lot of cool merchandise. I'll put a link in the chat. Please do, folks. Yeah, there are great people over there with really neat, really neat gear. So thanks for showing up, everyone. If you were a live attendee today, we appreciate your presence. We also appreciate those of you who are regulars or the occasional pop-in on Discord, especially Facebook as well. If you interact with us on Twitter or send us emails, send us interact with us on Patreon. All the interaction, we very greatly appreciate. Part of what makes us a community. Thank you very much if you're a patron of our show, whether you're a new patron or you've been around a while, you're really doing a great service to us. And that is hopefully paying dividends for the rest of the community because we try to be here almost every week with hopefully good takes, well-researched at least. They're definitely well thought out. I don't know if they're good, but we certainly put a lot of thought into them. <laughs> I think they're pretty good though. I would listen to us if I wasn't us, I think. Yeah, but you're biased. <laughs> I am biased. I would I soak I would I would absorb most there is to absorb about a song of ice and fire. As I do. I think that would I think that would be the same. Thanks as well to Nina for her note taking or note giving rather and some excellent suggestions, especially on the Rhaegar Liana stuff. We would really appreciate if you left us a rating. And now that there's multiple places hosting ratings for podcasts, even more important, there's uh, algorithms out there that can help promote us if you add your two cents in. Thanks to Joey and Jesse and Kevin McLeod for the various History of Westeros music. Shout out to our friend, the Benjineer, who just had a bit of a nasty accident and hurt his leg there. So get well soon, Benjineer. And our friends over here be dragons are doing an episode on The Matrix. The Matrix. The, the we, original we, Matrix. We kind of touched on The Matrix a little bit, didn't we? Yeah. Like some of these themes yeah, of being yeah. in the Werewood Network and plugged uh -huh. in and not wondering what else is going on. All that green. <laughs> All that green. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're doing the original Matrix, not Matrix Resurrections. That's right. what you want. The original. Yeah. Red and blue. Ice and fire pill. The, 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 the fire pill or the ice pill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, I, I would friends. rather take, I guess, an ice pill. Yeah, I probably like, would too. Fire pill sounds painful. It's like just yeah. taking like a, a, a tablet a flaming of, jello shot. Of spice, yeah. <laughs> well, if it's dune spice, I might want that. <laughs> but if it's just like ghost pepper, I think not. <laughs> okay, everyone, on behalf of uh, Shea and Sean as well, we will see you all next time for more 
Valar Virius.